Hey everyone, this is Sidetrack, a podcast for movie lovers. I am your host, Deke Antrim, and I am sitting next to the show's producer, Gigi Leish. Hey, we missed you guys, and hopefully you missed us too. This is our season two kickoff. Welcome back to all of our season one listeners, and a big hello to all of our new listeners. Yeah, we had some amazing episodes in season one, and all we have to do now is just not screw it up for season two. If you want to keep up with us and what we're watching, get some movie recommendations and even some giveaways, you can follow us on our socials like Facebook and Instagram or visit us at our brand new website, Sidetrack.stream. The newly updated Sidetrack.stream. Yes, brand new website. On today's episode, we'll be covering 1984's Starman as part of our John Carpenter career retrospective. We welcome back in series regular Mark Talley, who helps me navigate through some of the themes and plot points of the film. But before that, I had a chance to sit down and chat with cinematographer Donald M. Morgan, who shot both Christine and Starman. So trust me, you don't want to miss that conversation. And as always, we speak our minds here on Sidetracked, and there are major spoilers ahead. You have been warned. We're continuing on with our John Carpenter career retrospective, and today's guest has been the director of photography on three of Carpenter's movies, Elvis, which nabbed him his first of five Emmys, Christine, and Starman. He's worked with directors such as Sidney Poitier and Robert Zemeckis. I am very excited to be talking to cinematographer Donald M. Morgan, ASC. Donald, how are you today? I'm really good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Donald, I'm always intrigued to find out how our guests ended up in their chosen professions. Talk to me about how you became a cinematographer. That's a very strange situation in my my case. (laughs) I worked in a film lab for a little while, and I think I got fired a couple of times. I hated it. My dad was an animation cameraman. He got me an opportunity to do animation. And I equally hated that as much as I hated working in the film lab. (laughs) Never even crossed my mind about being a cinematographer. I had tried several different dumb things that I I won't bore you with, but uh, I just failed at most everything I did. And I was talking to a guy and I said, I need a job. And the guy said, well, you've you've worked around film, haven't you? And I said, yeah, you know, in a film lab. He said, well, you know, I know this guy, Nelson Tyler. He built a camera mount, the Tyler camera mount. And I bet you if you went over and talked to him, you might be able to get a job with him and do aerial photography with him. And I thought, oh, now now we're talking (laughs) I liked exciting things and no thought of being a cameraman. I just went over and I talked to Nelson and found out that his dad and my dad worked together uh, at Technicolor at one point. He said, yeah, I'll give you an opportunity if you want to work as an assistant. And I thought, oh man, hanging out and hanging out in helicopters and all that. (laughs) So that's the only reason that I went to work there because I wanted to hang around helicopters. I thought it would be exciting. So anyway, Nelson hired me and took me around and, you know, showed me the ropes. He was very patient with me, and uh, I liked him a lot. I wanted to do the aerial photography. And I said, when can I start shooting? He said, you just learned how to put the mount together a week or two ago why don't we be a little patient? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, long story longer, I worked with him for a while and we went all over the place. We were in Hawaii and everything. And he took me with him and I was his assistant. And all I had to do 
it wasn't like pulling focus or anything because he did everything from the mount. He pushed the focus when he wanted to change. He did everything with his hands. And that's the part that you had to learn to be an aerial cameraman. Anyway, finally, he sent me on a couple jobs by myself to show other cameramen how to shoot out of the mount. And um, I got an opportunity to shoot. He had a mini mount, which he called a mini mount, which was a 16 millimeter mount. And uh, I got a job that a guy said, you know, I can't afford Nelson. Would you be willing to shoot? And so I thought, I've watched Nelson enough. I can do it. So <laughs> I did a 16 millimeter job and the guy liked it. So I now considered myself an aerial cameraman. <laughs> I worked at that for quite a while and I became one of the top aerial guys. I was working on all kinds of big time movies. I thought, this is the life. And finally, a guy asked me, he said, Don, I got a little job I need you to do. I got a bunch of kids having like a party and eating ice cream and yelling at each other and stuff. All I want to do is capture some of that for a commercial or something that he was doing. And he said, could you do that? And I said, I don't do lighting. <laughs> and he said, well, get a gaffer to help you. So I found a guy that was a gaffer and I asked him if he could help me do this. And he did it, and they raved about the footage. And <laughs> the guy was just telling me what a beautiful job I did. And I said, you know, I didn't do the lighting. The other guy did the lighting. I just aimed the camera. And he said, well, I don't give a damn. I asked you to do it, and you did a good job. <laughs> so I thought, uh, maybe I better figure out how to do lighting if I'm going to go on with this career. So I bought a book of 100 famous paintings, and I started copying some of the lighting in the paintings. And little by little, I started getting a reputation and I started shooting on the ground and I started shooting commercials and, and a, a few television things. I did a TV movie and the producer came over to me and he said, uh, you know, every shot you do looks like a Rembrandt. And I thought, wow, who the fuck is Rembrandt? <laughs> 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 Must not have been in that book you picked up. <laughs> but anyway, I started shooting uh, here and there, got more and more into lighting, and uh, the rest is history. Was there any director of photography that you studied, or did you just go by paintings? I went by paintings to start out, but one of my favorite guys was Gordon Willis. Oh, yeah. I just loved Gordon's work, and I took a swing towards doing stuff like he did. Using more shadows and shooting a little darker then. Yeah. Right? You know, I'd go on these interviews and guys would say, are you good and fast? I'd say I could be one or the other, but not both. <laughs> and <laughs> I talked my way out of a few jobs by those answers. But um, I decided I wanted to be an artist and not just a hack. The rest is all history. I really got as excited about being on a set lighting as I did hanging out of a helicopter. <laughs> it just was something that just excited me. Yeah. Christine's budget was just under $10 million and Starman's was $22 million. What were some of the advantages you and your team had on Starman over Christine? You know, it doesn't seem to matter how much money is involved. We traveled all over the place with Starman, and Christine was, a lot of it was shot in that, uh, 
Oh, the uh, Darnell's uh, garage. Yeah. So half of that was lit all the time. I would naturally have to do a little change, but the outside, outside windows and uh, all that stuff, it was always half done. On Starman, we traveled all over the place. It ate up a lot of our money. You shot Christine and Starman back-to-back. One is a horror film with very dark tones in the story, and one is a romance showing off America's beauty through its landscapes. Where do you notice the biggest differences in lighting to help support that tonal shift? When you're doing romantic stuff, you have to have a little softer light. You know, the other was a harder light. It was dark and moody. You have to be uh, pretty careful doing that kind of stuff in a romantic scene. I think it's all in the lighting that makes the difference. And you guys were using the Panavision Panaflex Gold Camera, correct? Yes, I believe so. you got to remember, uh, that's been a while ago. <laughs> that was pretty much the go-to stuff for me. What's it like shooting anamorphic? Do you like shooting through those lenses? I did. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed my work. No matter what the format was, I just had a good time doing what I did, and Anamorphic was fun because not everybody was doing it. You'd get a little bit of that respect when you'd say, yeah, I'm shooting this anamorphic. <laughs> oh, you are. <laughs> That's a real film if you're shooting anamorphic. Yeah. You mentioned about some of the locations you guys were shooting in. Since it was shot in multiple states, were there any struggles staying on schedule? I really don't know if we finished on schedule on um, Starman or not. I got to tell you the truth. I've been yelled at for being too slow (laughs) my whole life in camera. You know, you're taking too much time lighting. you got to do it quicker. I would look at a room that I lit, and I'd look it over, and I'd go, you see that plant in the background? Put an inky right down on that plant so it sticks out a little. That's BS. (laughs) I mean, taking time to do that after you've lit the set was not a smart move on my part. (laughs) I just kept looking at it like it was a painting Mm -hmm. and thinking, oh, if I did this, it would look so much better. And I was always yelled at for being too slow. Hey, but you know what? The end result speaks for itself, though. Both those movies, Christine and Starman, are fantastic to look at. So whatever extra measures you were taking or whatever schedule you stayed on or didn't stay on it, it's worth it because it's awesome to watch. I, I appreciate you saying that. But what I used to get was pile of letters from producers saying the film wouldn't have been the same without you Don your photography was beautiful that was always after the fact <laughs> not, not during the we shooting <laughs> it was you too slow <laughs> yeah but just remember the letters that's all that matters <laughs> hey i want to go back to what you were talking about with the aerial photography there's no shortage of helicopter shots and a lot of aerial photography in the movie how involved with that process were you well that was, that was uh no big deal. It was uh, stuff that I'd done, and they knew it, and Carpenter let me do it. Because on a couple of movies I've done, I had to hire aerial cameramen. Rex Metz was a helicopter cameraman, and I used him on one movie that I did because they wouldn't let me take the time to go do it. I would just tell him, here's what you got to do, you know, like a second unit cameraman. And... uh I hated doing that, but that was what had to happen sometimes. But so for on this one, you were doing most of the photography? On uh, Starman, I did the aerial stuff, yeah. 
Starman is one of my favorite genres. It's the road trip movie, but a lot of those types of movies get boring to watch because of a lack of creative ways to shoot heavy dialogue scenes, especially in small confined spaces like cars. What were you guys doing to break up the staleness of your shot strategy? I got to throw a lot of that credit to Carpenter. He was really good at keeping stuff interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. He was always willing to do something to break it up and make it more interesting. You know, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but I know that John was, he was pretty hard on knowing what he wanted. And once in a while, he'd give in to to Don Morgan's uh, suggestion, but he was a very talented guy. There's some major explosions in both Christine and Starman. Can you talk me through some of the extra measures that go into shooting those types of scenes? And Starman, that big explosion, the assistant cameraman, I had him dial the, the stop as it exploded. They would give it more stop as it got brighter, brighter, brighter. <laughs> That's something that I had them do in camera. So you're adjusting aperture as the explosion's going off? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I didn't want to expose for the hottest part and then have the whole jungle go dark. So I just showed them what I wanted them to do. And I said, when it gets real bright, here's where the stop should be. And so they would just dial it in. There was enough cuts that you couldn't see any of the, the moves. Mm-hmm. The explosions of both Starman and especially Christine, once Christine sets the gas station on fire and it comes out completely engulfed in flames, I mean, that's just some of the most beautiful photography ever. I, I love those shots. I know we're not talking about the Christine, but when that car is just going down the road and it's just nothing but flames coming off, it's just beautiful to look at. Yeah, it's, it was good stuff. <laughs> I was fortunate to have guys that could help with that stuff. Do you get pretty excited when you see big explosion listed on the shot list for the day? Is that something you look forward to? I don't know that I look forward to any particular thing. I loved lighting. I'm the least technical cinematographer on the face of the earth. <laughs> I used to say, hey, put one of those on one of these and shine it over here. And a gaffer would say, do you know the name of anything? <laughs> oh. And uh, I had one gaffer that I worked with for years. And I used to say, I want a lot of backlight here. I want a 10K up here. And every time I'd look, it would be a 2K. And I'd say, I thought I asked for a 10K. He said, you did. And then every time I put one up there and you take a light reading, you say, put a double in that. (laughs) (laughs) I finally figured out this is what the backlight should read. (laughs) What was it like shooting in Vegas? I know Carpenter spoke about some of the challenges shooting inside of casinos. I'm trying to think if we did much lighting in the casinos. It seemed like there was enough bouncing around in there that we didn't have to do a whole lot of lighting, but we would always help out with the actors, you know. I just love the way you guys end that sequence. You end on a big boom crane shot up as Jenny and Starman take off. Oh, good. Thank you. Talk to me about some of the access you guys had shooting at the crater. Well, we pretty well had a free run there, if I remember correctly. I think we could do most anything we decided we wanted to do there. They lined it up where we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. Jenny and Starman's goodbye is a very drastic stylized lighting choice with the blue and red and the snow coming down. How did you guys land on that decision? 
that was Carpenter's idea, and uh, all done on a stage. When the ship takes off, you do a beautiful transition from the alien lighting, which is that really, really drastic blue and red lighting, and it goes right back to the natural lighting that matches the crater scene that happened right before that. But it's just a nice transition of lighting there. Yeah, that was all rigged and worked out on the stage. Great way to end that movie, by the way. Thank you. What was your overall experience working with Carpenter since you shot three movies with him? I think it was on Christine. We were sitting on the curb after a shot and waiting for a car to come pick us up. We'd been on the camera car. And he said to me, I can't imagine ever using another cameraman besides you. And I said, well, it's okay with me, boss. I like working with you. And then we did Starman and we never worked together again. (laughs) Whatever it's worth, whatever you guys did do together, it's fantastic work. You know, it was a great time in my life. I liked working with him. Uh, My interview with him on the first thing that I did, Elvis, I was working with Adrian Barbeau. And Adrian Barbeau and him were married. And we were working on a film. And she said, you know, my boyfriend's looking for a cameraman. Would you be interested in meeting with him? I said, sure. (laughs) So we set up a lunch. You know, I knew his work but I didn't know him. So uh, anyway, we set up a lunch engagement. I got off the movie for my lunch period, and he met me at a restaurant, and we talked. And John's not the warmest guy in the world. (laughs) He doesn't say, yeah, you're my man or anything. (laughs) So we talked for a little while. We ate, and then I went back to work with Adrian, and... Adrian said, how'd it go? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said, well, he called me and said he hired you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're going to get great news, it's great to hear from Adrian Barbeau for sure. Yeah. So that's how I found out I was working with John Carpenter. <laughs> through his from, girlfriend. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see Starman or Christine in a theater with a crowd? And if so, what was that experience like? I saw Starman at Grauman's Chinese for a screening. I don't think I'd ever seen anybody get Grauman's Chinese for a screening. It was there and it was packed. But my agent was sitting right behind me and he leaned over after the movie and he said, Don, there's no God if you don't get an Academy Award (laughs) nomination for this. And that's when I found out there was no God. You were robbed. I agree. (laughs) Well, I saw Christine a couple of times, and then I saw years later, they had a screening in Hollywood, and they had the car there. And how was that audience reaction? Oh, it was great. That's got to be a great feeling to be in a theater like that and hearing everyone clapping and applauding and getting freaked out. That's got to be amazing. Well, you know, I can wear a t-shirt from any movie or a jacket from any movie I've done and no one will pay any attention to it. (laughs) I got Christine with the car breaking through a bunch of fire on a t-shirt and I went to the market and the guy said, did you see that movie? I said, I shot that movie. He said, my favorite movie of all time. Isn't that a great feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Donald, is there anything we didn't cover about Starman that you wanted to bring up? Uh, lack of pay. 
No, I, I, uh, you know what? I was very fortunate in my career. I, I had a great career. I would have liked to have lived long enough and been in it long enough to got an Academy Award nomination <laughs> on something. I got nine Emmy nominations nine. and I won five. And then uh, the American Society of Cinematographers, they put me up for lifetime achievement. The committee that was doing it said, Don's been doing television. He hadn't been doing features. And the argument was I've done as many, probably as many features as I did television. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I got known for movie of the weeks and stuff. So they didn't want to give me the lifetime achievement. So they decided to make another award, the career achievement and television award. And I was the first one that got that. I love hearing that. That's great. Yeah, Owen Roseman was the president of the ASC at the time. He was a great, great cinematographer also. He was pretty friendly with me, and he thought it was really shitty that they wouldn't give me a <laughs> Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. But uh, they said, well, he's done so many good television things. Why don't we have an award for that? And the committee dreamed up the award, and I was the first one to get it. <laughs> if you ever go to the ASC clubhouse in Hollywood... They got my picture and all of the guys that have won it after me. This is an absolute honor to have this conversation with you. I can't thank you enough. Well, me too. Really appreciate it. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night. The people of Earth invited him, but never dreamt he'd come. Greetings. You better let her go, pal. I'll give you some greetings. We prepared questions, but were never ready for the answers. And now that he is here... He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Permission to launch. Can't you just leave him alone? Do we dare let him live? John Carpenter's Starman, the science fiction love story. Rated PG. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for theaters. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Donald M. Morgan. And we are continuing on. I'm sitting here with my friend, Mark Talley. Mark, how you doing today, buddy? I send you greetings. <laughs> Dude, we haven't covered Carpenter in like, it feels like it's probably closer to a year now. I was just thinking that the other day. I was like, oh man, do I, do I need to get back in the swing here? I don't know. I wanted to tell you, man, um, before we get started in the actual Starman section of this podcast, of the Starman podcast, um, there's been a couple of Carpenter things that I've experienced for the first time since uh, last we spoke. I watched this movie, Black Moon Rising from 1986. Have you ever seen this movie before? I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. When I was doing the William Sanderson interview for the Blade Runner podcast, he was telling me, oh, hey, I listened to you and Mark's uh, episodes on the Carpenter stuff. Well, hey, I did one of Carpenter's movies. Black Moon Rising. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It didn't make a lot of money, but uh, I had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's 1986. It's written by Carpenter, and it's directed by Harley Koklis, who did Second Unit on Empire Strikes Back. And it's got this amazing cast. It's got Tommy Lee Jones. It's even got a sex scene with Tommy Lee Jones, which I don't get to see many of those uh, these wait. days. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I was going to chime in. That's how I've heard of it. I knew he was in it, but I've just never seen it. Yeah, and he's great yeah. in it. Linda Hamilton at her absolute most stunning, I might add. Sanderson, nice. of course. It's got Robert Vaughn, and he was amazing in it. Cool. Nick Cassavetes and Hightower, Bubba Smith. Pretty cool cast. Nice. It's one of those movies that's uh, based around the main cool car. There's kind of like a space-age cool car. That was kind of a big thing in the 80s. You know, they always had to have some kind of buckaroo <laughs> yeah, bonsai yeah. type of thing or something like that. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of based up. on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. 
But it was pretty good. It also had uh, that guy, Richard Jekyll, who we're going to speak about, the guy who plays Director Fox and Starman. So yeah, it's free on Tubi and I, I really enjoyed it. You should check it out. I might do that. I also checked out Eyes of Laura Mars from 1978. Did you ever see this movie? That's been on my bucket list to watch forever. I've not seen it, but yeah, I've heard a lot about Actually, I haven't heard anything about it. Just I know of it. You know, I'm, I know little of the story or anything. Another Tommy Lee Jones. It's directed by Kirshner. So two Empire Strikes Back references there. It had Faye Dunaway as the star, Tommy Lee Jones, again, having sex, Brad Dorif and Raul Julia. Can't wait. Again. Yeah, again. <laughs> uh, oh, dude. Well, Brad Dorif. double feature of uh, naked yeah. Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> Brad Dorif sex scene? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't want to hear the voice of Chucky, Owen, and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, Bride of Chucky, yeah, he kind of doesn't. <laughs> or maybe, maybe a seed of Chucky. I don't know which one they did. But anyway. It was also produced by John Peters, the guy who Bradley Cooper plays in Licorice oh. Pizza. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's funny. Did you ever hear any of the uh, Kevin Smith stories he tells about John Peters when he was interviewing for scripting the Superman movies? So anyway, I'm going to meet John Peters, and and he shows up, and he's wearing, like, short tennis shorts and shit, and he's kind of a built dude, but he's got a perfect head of hair, like, well-coiffed or coiffed. <clears throat> so I come down and sit down with him. He says, they tell me you got to take on Superman. I said, I, I do. He said, let me hear it, and I tell it to him. After a while, I'm done. He's just nodding, looking at me, nodding, and he goes... You know why you and me are going to do a good job on Superman? And I said, why? He's going, because you and me, we get Superman. You know why? I said, no. He said, because you and me, we're from the streets. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard he's a little nuts. And then the only other thing really since the last time we spoke, I watched uh, Halloween Kills. I wasn't a really big fan of it, but I do have to say for both of those movies, the David Gordon Green ones, the John Carpenter score is the absolute best part of those movies, yeah. especially Halloween it's, Kills, it's man. Outstanding. I hear what you're saying. And I knew when I saw it, I was like, oh man, I know people are probably going to pick this thing apart. I'm reserving judgment until I see ends because the middle part of the trilogy, I'm kind of like, as much as they were trying to adhere to the first movie with the 2018 Halloween like all bets were off for Halloween kills. He was just like brutalizing people left and right. Like armpit stabs and shit. <laughs> oh God. And the the scene in the SUV right by the playground, I was like, oh God. Like it was just brutal. And then the ending leaves you like, what did I just see? You know, like, did I just see that? What's going on? And then they touted the big extended ending when it was released on Blu-ray. It's like a couple of seconds of a phone call or something. Like, you know, it was it was all right. <laughs> And it kind of sets up like what might happen in ends. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of reserving my full on judgment until until ends. The score was great. And I really liked the dudes living in the Myers house. I thought they were hilarious. Gotcha. Personally, <laughs> when the guy goes, he stabbed his sister in the tits like that. Just I lost it. I, th- I thought that was really, really funny to me. Yeah. Anyway, do you know what question I'm going to ask you next? Uh, no. Okay. Should I? <laughs> Have you seen Dark Star yet? Oh, shit, I should have. Yes, I should have. Okay. This is, I mean, I was going to say funny story, but it might let people down if I say that. But I seriously was like, Starman, Dark Star. Why don't I watch it like before or after Starman? Like, just so I can say I watched it. It's a perfect connection. Didn't watch it. No, I didn't watch it. I, I wanted to. I wanted to. I took it out last night. And I was like, if I have time, F it. I'm not going to have time. I'm just going to watch Starman. So. Yeah, so I haven't watched it yet. But I got a feeling that question's right going to last us all the way to the ward. <laughs> I know. I sat there and I was like, do I want it to continue or do I want to slam it down and go, I've done it. Like slam it on the desk. Watched. Yeah. Oh, and not to mention the fact that uh, Tarantino's podcast opens with Dark right. Star. So when I was like all excited to, l- to listen to that and then I saw what they covered and I was like, well, I got to wait on this, I guess. <laughs> I didn't want to spoil it. Anyway, it's, yeah. just, it's another funny aspect to it. I was like, God, 
this movie, it's like haunting me now. <laughs> yeah, Tarantino and his uh, buddy Roger Avery started um, the Video mm-hmm. Archives podcast. They started off with Dark Star, and I was like immediately thinking of you. I was like, well, I don't, like, I don't I know. think he's listened to this one yet because he never like, does that stuff before he's seen it. a movie. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I don't want to skip any of these episodes. I want to get in. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> anyway, right, cool. we'll fun. revisit that for Big Trouble for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we're going to be taking a look at the most non-John Carpenter, John Carpenter film, John Carpenter's Starman. Jeff Bridges plays an alien who lands on Earth and takes on the form of Scott Hayden, the deceased husband of Jenny Hayden, played by Karen Allen. Together, they drive across the country to get Starman to a rendezvous point to be picked up and taken home. Mark, what is your history on this movie? I know you've only seen it like a handful of times. It might be the first John Carpenter movie that I ever saw as a kid. Because it was before I got into horror. It was before I even saw TV versions of stuff like I've mentioned in the past. My parents both love this movie. My dad loved it. I'm sure if I brought it up to my mom now, she would go ape over it and like <laughs> say, oh, yeah, like I haven't seen it in a while or whatever. But they used to have it on quite a bit, which is it's an odd little movie to just put on, I guess. But if they ever saw it on TV, they'd stop. We may have recorded it onto one of our many, many blank tapes and worn that out. (laughs) But yeah, I just remember vividly that it was one of those movies that, aside from a few curse words, it's not that tough of a watch as a kid. The themes of it might go over a kid's head, as I'm sure it did when I was younger, but I'll never forget the fact that my parents were so into it. That made me gravitate toward the movie because it was like, oh, let's gather around and watch this thing. And yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed the movie for that, partly, but also because it's just a damn good movie. I haven't seen this in probably since I was a kid, like years. Yeah, it's been decades. Yeah, it was a great revisit. And, you know, obviously I had to study it for the podcast, and it got better every single time I watched it. It's definitely something that grows on you. And that, that might be because now I'm the same age as your parents probably now. But yeah, <laughs> just uh, just the themes no. of, of dealing with death and childbirth and a lot of other things we're going to talk about throughout the podcast. But there's some more adult subject material than I think I'm used to seeing in a Carpenter film. The thing obviously is super gloomy because it's like no one survives that movie. This movie is gloomy in a different way where you're basically driving around with your dead husband for a road trip and that's kind of fucked up in its own right. It had yeah. some different, more adult stuff to deal with in this, which I liked. I feel like maybe it's an 80s convention of not thinking too much into that kind of effed up nature of what she's going through and just having her be a little weirded out instead of really getting into the depths of what that actually means for somebody's like psyche. Because, you know, he says at one point in the movie, like, I chose this form so you wouldn't be scared a little bit. I get that. That's true. But it's still off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> like they're kind of ignoring the kind of effed up off-putting nature of it where I'm like, I'm surprised she even drove the car and she wasn't just staring over at him the whole time, just looking, which she was masterful at that. In the background, her work, her consistent, constant work of staring at him kind of side eye, like what is going on? Just nonstop. She was she was awesome. We talk a lot about how movies since Carpenter movies take on a lot of cues from Carpenter films. I haven't seen this movie replicated as much as some of his more iconic work. Just you mentioning that fact right there where they have the alien come down and start to look like a family member of hers, so it's a little easier for her to digest some of the information she's going to be taking on throughout the road trip. I remember watching uh, Contact, and at the end of that film, spoiler, the alien (laughs) looks like her father to kind of ease the situation so she can not freak out that she's uh, visiting another alien planet through a wormhole, and it's just kind of stuff like that. The more I watch this movie for this podcast, I notice there's some other alien type movies that I've seen that are not per se copying, but definitely taking some cues, I thought, from what this movie did correctly, I thought. You saying that about Contact, reminding me about that, makes me wonder when the book 
that Carl Sagan wrote was written. So I wonder if the screenwriters for Starman copied that, you know, because I'm not sure when he wrote that, but or if it happens the same way. I don't know. You know, I mean, it could have been an adaptation that they did because they liked what happened in Starman, too. You know, I have no idea. I can see what you're saying about people aping from other Carpenter stuff. And maybe they didn't copy from this so much because feels very original. And like you said, anti-Carpenter. I always want to watch it the best I can first time I rewatch it. And so I borrowed your Blu-ray and it looked yeah. amazing. It was a great transfer. Thank you for letting me borrow that. Uh, was it Scream or Shout, you said? Yeah, it's it's Scream Factory, Scream which Factory. honestly, I was surprised. It's like, I'm sure the only reason they put it under that banner is because Carpenter did it. Mm-hmm. Because there's really not a, it's not a horror movie at yeah. all. And it's their horror movie banner. So it's a little bizarre. But We've mentioned this in other podcasts, but anytime you get a chance to listen to a Carpenter commentary, I, I highly recommend. It was him and Jeff Bridges on this one. And just like oh, when man. he's doing the ones with Kurt Russell, I mean, they're just hooping and hollering and having a great time. It was recorded around his Big Lebowski era. So he's just already just kind of like, whatever's great, man. You know, he's like <laughs> kind of in that zone. And it's just great to hear them rapping about all the great memories and fondness of this movie. All right, let's go ahead and dive in uh, to a couple of things about the movie. The budget was $24 million and it ended up grossing $28 million. Not a huge return there, but it definitely made its money back. The big thing about this movie that everyone talks about is the fact that Columbia owned two scripts at the time. They owned Starman and Night Skies. Both had a lot of similarities, including friendly aliens that come down to Earth. They ended up holding a lot of focus groups and did a lot of testing to see which one played better. Everyone at Columbia said, hey, Starman plays better. Let's release Night Skies. They sold it to Universal. Universal picked it up, hired Spielberg, and ended up turning it into E.T., which ended up grossing just shy of $793 million and still climbing because it's back in the theaters again in IMAX, by the way. Yeah. I think. Obviously, a, <laughs> they let it go the wrong one there. We're going to talk about it throughout <laughs> this podcast, but there are still a lot of similarities between E.T. and Starman that we're, I want to call out. Did you ever get around to seeing the TV series? Oh, didn't I have the guy from um, <laughs> Airplane? Airplane, yeah, yeah, yeah Robert Hayes from Airplane. I, <laughs> I, I no, I, I haven't sought that out, but I did. I did see something about it at one point. I'm not sure when, but did you ever see any of it? No, 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 no. I didn't. I remember seeing the cover. I think isn't it just him in like a leather jacket, just kind of looking at you, and you're like, okay, a Starman movie doesn't even really convey that, so it's kind of weird. Now it's the son of Starman growing up, and so he comes oh, back. Oh man! And, so they do the sequel thing? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. See, I was, I was saving my comments for the end. No Karen Allen or, or her character in the TV show, but just coming back and yeah. picking up his son. I think the son is played by uh, Prince Eric from Little Mermaid, the voice actor. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this movie was executive produced by Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. I forgot that he did this movie. I don't think he's really known for a lot of his producing properties. He did One Fool with a Cuckoo's Nest, Flatliners. Yeah. He did Double Impact for Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, he does like these like weird projects where when his name pops That's up, you're weird like, what one, the yeah. hell? <laughs> <laughs> when I see Brooks films on certain things, it always makes me go, what? Because it's Mel Brooks and it's like David Cronenberg's The Fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're like, huh? And there's this movie about like... Didn't he do Elephant Man too? Century. Yeah, Elephant Man. So he hired David Lynch to direct that. And it's like, okay, Mel Brooks. And then he even did this movie called The Doctors and the Devils with Timothy Dalton, Jonathan Price, and Twiggy, of all people. It's a cool, interesting movie. It's almost Frankenstein-ish, where it's like grave robbing and stuff, but just without the monster side. So it's like, you know, for what it makes it less interesting or not, I don't know. But yeah, Mel Brooks has produced that. So it's like, yeah, Same thing always with amazes Vito. me. First night I went to Pulp Fiction, I was like, whoa, was that the same Danny DeVito? Yeah, it's crazy. Both wore the roses, people there. This is the only (laughs) Carpenter film to be nominated for any Oscar at all. Bridges was nominated for the Best Actor Oscar and lost to F. Murray Abraham for his role in Amadeus. 
I did not remember that Bridges was nominated for that. That's great. Well, he was awesome in it. Uh, he was also up against Tom Hulse, who actually played Amadeus. I wonder how pissed off Tom Hulse was that he didn't win the Oscar for Amadeus. That's pretty funny because of the whole like uh, rivalry anyway between yeah. the real people they played. And then they're up for Best Actor and then Solieri wins. That's crazy. Life imitating uh, art. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I haven't thought about that in a while. When I read that this was the only, only movie that ever got nominated for a single category of Oscar for Carpenter made me go down a rabbit hole. And I, I was just kind of amazed. Wes Craven's never been nominated. Brian De Palma, Sergio Leone, Cronenberg, Sam Raimi, Park Chan-wook. Some of these directors we've covered pretty extensively in our podcast. I'm like, man, to, to yeah. never be nominated is kind of disgusting. I'll, I'll tell you, of all of those, Cronenberg surprises me the most, mm -hmm. Like, yeah. especially here lately, like the last few movies he's done. I don't know. It hasn't really been too gross for body <laughs> horror. I mean, what, I haven't seen his newest one yet. Oh, but, Crimes of the Future, so it's I, good. You'll yeah, like it. I saw in the theater. Uh, yeah, I've... I know I wanted to get out and see it, but I missed it. And I almost bought it for like 15 bucks digitally, but I'm, it's getting a 4K soon, I think. I'm, I might wait for that, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I would champion it a bit. Like, <laughs> I can't wait, but yeah, I, I meant to see it. But yeah, everybody else, I kind of get, like, they tried. Some of them tried, like Wes Craven did that music from the heart or something with Meryl Streep. He tried to do, like, sort of drama, Oscar fair, and I think even Sam Raimi did that baseball movie with Kevin Costner. But that may have been just for Sony Pictures to see if he could do down the line movie and before they gave him spider-man i don't know one for them one for me uh, yeah yeah exactly who knows it might have been him trying his hand at more dramatic stuff but i don't know cronenberg that sticks out to me yeah man park it's interesting yeah yeah and leone that's true. all kinds of names in there i was like geez yeah yeah you're right you're right especially for like good bad and the ugly come on yeah. or once upon a time in america <laughs> that may have been his big like come on it's american uh, gangsters come give on. me one suckers yeah it worked for godfather he didn't give him to me <laughs> I got the entire cast. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're like, come on, Leone. <laughs> we see what you're doing. <laughs> so the reason that Carpenter signed on to do this project is because of a script by Dean Reisner. The DGA did not allow him to get a credit for the script that he wrote because they gave the credit to the original script writers. He came in and did some rewrites, which was the stuff that Carpenter signed on to do. But as a thank you, he put him in as, as a thank you note at the end of the credits. He ended up getting fined by the DGA for that. Whoa, crazy. Carpenter did himself? Yeah, Little Rebel. That's nuts. Because that's the script he signed on to do, and then he didn't get credit for it. He gets a fine yeah, for just it. Just for a special thanks? Yep. That's crazy. I know. He couldn't even Man, slide the rules that and regulations. <laughs> F them. Let's go ahead and talk about some of the directors that were hired before Carpenter, who was the fifth director to get hired. Originally, they had John Badham, who I think did Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. There was Adrian Lyne. Um, he did, fuck, why am I drawing a blank? I know he did the remake Fatal of, Attraction. yeah, he did Fatal Attraction and I'm drawing a blank. He did the, oh, yeah. the remake of, um, Lolita. Did you ever see that? Oh, the, his yeah, remake yeah, no, that? I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I think I saw parts of it. Wasn't it a Showtime original thing back in the day? It wasn't bad. It started, I think the girl from Face Off, if I remember correctly or something like that, little girl from Face yeah, Off. Yeah, was daughter. it, um, Jeremy Irons? Yeah, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. One of the other directors was Tony Scott. And then right before Carpenter, they hired a guy named Mark Rydell, who I think did On Golden Pond instead of Starman. Yeah, I think he also did the John Wayne movie, The Cowboys. That's a great movie, too. Bruce Dern in there. It's good. I have to put that on the list. The last thing I wanted to talk about before we actually dive into the movie is the score by Jack Nietzsche. I just thought it was fantastic. I know him from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and Stand By Me. I also recently watched Cruising, another Karen Allen movie, and he did the score did for that. that. Have you seen Cruising yet? No, but I didn't. That's the first I'd heard that Karen Allen's in it, too. I, I'm aware of it, but I just haven't seen it yet. I almost got it on that Arrow sale a couple months ago, but I didn't do it. I got to tell you, that movie kind of fucked me up. I kind of need someone to talk to about this movie because I'd seen it before when I was younger and it really messed me up. And it took me years to come back 
I revisited it a month ago and man, dude, it is still messed terrifying, up. Terrifying. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. I need to see it. My thoughts on the score, the sort of main lyrical theme that plays anytime he does his otherworldly powers or anytime there's sort of a romantic moment or a sweeping big moment, I feel like that Carpenter, I'm not going to say he never could have done that, but he isn't really known for his sweeping lyrical music. His driving themes are kind of his thing. So I feel like that's total Jack Nietzsche. You mentioned Stand By Me. I just rewatched that like last week because I picked up the 4K. That's like the only real thing I remember that I recognize his name from. So it's cool that you mentioned those other things because I wasn't really aware he did those. But I feel like everything else in the movie, Carpenter really had notes and maybe worked with him really closely because there's a lot of Carpenter sounding feel music in this thing. Even when Carpenter doesn't do his score, it still sounds like Carpenter did the score. We talked about this for the thing. Obviously, it's a great score, but it it still sounds like Carpenter-esque. And same thing with this. This one seems a little bit, as you mentioned, it has a bit more of a broadness to it. Yeah, it's just, I really feel like Carpenter was right there with him and really giving him notes and really molding it, but letting him do it his way, but saying like, man, I need something right here where it's more of like a bass. Because there's several times the bass just like, dum, 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 which is very Carpenter. Anywhere in Stand By Me, I don't remember, but not that every composer has to do the same damn thing in every movie, um, except for R.I.P. James Horner. But anyway, (laughs) yeah, I, I just feel like Carpenter was right there, always in his ear, like maybe do this, maybe do that. And who knows, maybe he wasn't, I don't know. But there were Carpenter esque moments. And then there was like stuff that I was like, okay, no, that's Nietzsche peppering his own thing in it and giving it his own feel. But yeah, it's it's definitely the same wheelhouse in parts of it. Definitely has that synth sound. Everyone knows yeah. the Carpenter's very synth-based and yeah. it's very, you know, it's, it's 80s. So it has that Well, tone. yeah, and even Nietzsche, even Stand By Me, I didn't really remember how synthesized it is. It's interesting you bring that up because Stand By Me takes place in a certain decade. That's kind of where Nietzsche comes from. He co-wrote that song Needles and Pins for The Searchers. Okay. Interesting. He used to do songs back in that era. So it's interesting that the Stand By Me soundtrack would sound, as you said, synth, because he used to write songs that come from the era that they're replicating in Stand By Me. So. Which I know the music in that, the songs in that movie kind of exist as part of the score, too, mm-hmm. to set that mood. It didn't stick out to me, especially this latest time I watched it, given how more attuned I am to different things in a production, so to speak. The synth thing didn't really stick out as being like non 60s even though it definitely is firmly in the 80s. But uh, yeah, it's odd how it worked, you know? Like Mm -hmm. maybe it's just testament to like, if the music is good enough, it doesn't matter the source of it. He he does some interesting work. I'm interested to maybe like listen to, to other things he's done kind of separately, maybe. A lot of times with these podcasts, a big thing that I treat myself to so I can go to bed with these movies before we do the podcast is I always buy the soundtrack on vinyl, which you got me into. Thank you. I'm like a couple thousand dollars in debt now for vinyl. Yeah, I know. I was like, uh, you're welcome for that. Uh, (laughs) Climbing debt, sir. You're welcome. (laughs) I didn't pick this one up, but I definitely need to because the more I listen to it, it just got better and better and better and more powerful, I might add, because there's some scenes we're going to talk about in a couple minutes here. If you just took the music out, it wouldn't be the same without just the swell of the music. The more I was thinking about, uh, again, you'll probably edit this out because I'm like talking behind the curtain here. But uh, (laughs) later on, when we talk of different scores, there was a little moment where right before the main theme, where he goes, that part really sounded like Horner to me. Kind of had a Titanic sounding. It really had that kind of feel to it. But yeah, it's a great theme. I love, I love Nietzsche's main sweeping. It's an epic theme. And every time he uses those powers, it just swells up. 
of the credits, we see a satellite carrying a variety of languages and music like the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction to a distant planet. That planet instantly sends out its own spacecraft to Earth. Immediate like U-turn. There was no like alien committee meeting or nothing. Just like within seconds of <laughs> shipping something back right into Earth. I remember after seeing Christine and hearing Beast of Burden, that Carpenter loves the Stones, but is a song that complains about other inhabitants of Earth really the best message to be sending out to space for our theme song? <laughs> no. It also makes me wonder, was it put on that Voyager record? Are they playing fast and loose with that? Or was that song really put on there? I don't know the exact contents. I just know like the welcome greeting and then the different languages. What is it, 56 or 54 different languages that they put on there? It's just as a greeting. But as far as the individual songs, I've, I don't know that. But are they just putting like songs that sound good or are they actually listen to those lyrics because they're complaining about other people on that song? I mean, I'm thinking like, <laughs> yeah. was Fifth Dimension's Age of Aquarius not available to put on the uh, gold anodized disc? Let's put that negativity out there. In the universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect, perfect stuff. <laughs> All right. Next, we're introduced to Jenny, who's played by Karen Allen, who is getting drunk and watching home movies on a film projector of her and her dead husband, Scott. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the home videos, it's Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges playing guitar and singing to each other. But in the background, there's this third actor who keeps trying to like squeeze his face into I the did, frame. And it's so fucking annoying. <laughs> I did notice that. It's really he's funny. just over Bridges' like shoulders and he's like keeps yeah. popping in the shot. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? And he's staring right into the lens of the film camera like, hey, how you doing? I don't know why, but I've been super noticeable of background actors. And I'm always trying to see if they're trying to shift their head a certain way or get into certain shots just a little longer or the way they walk diagonally across the screen so they can get a little more screen time. I'm always watching that now. So I noticed that right off the bat yeah. for this movie. Well, especially like talking to that uh, Steadicam guy that talked about how he choreographed all the people moving around and doing certain things, crossing at a certain time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably going to open you wide up to like really looking at that. Like, what are they doing? You know, like not really inspiration, but what the hell? Sometimes you can really go, what the hell are they doing? Like, <laughs> why are they doing that? Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen did a cover for the music song, All I Have to Do is Dream. I can make I kind of got a little emotional because it was kind of like my parents' song. And I'm sure there was a lot of people's parents' songs, but that kind of got me because losing my dad in early 2021 and then knowing how much he loved this movie mm -hmm. and how much my mom loved it too. And I, I started getting a little bit, you know, a little verklempt, as mm -hmm. they say, like just sitting there like, oh, I did not remember this was in this movie. And so it kind of took me to another place as well. So not only is the movie doing it, as far as my childhood, but now within the movie, it's doing it. It's like all these layers and layers. And I was like, oh God, here we go. So I was kind of buckling up to like get it. <laughs> here comes the experience. <laughs> Honestly, I really do wish I had seen this movie more in the intervening decades that it's been since I've seen it because it hit differently anyway, but it would have really hit a lot different. You know, I would have kind of sat up and noticed it more instead of just like, okay, here we go. Because everything about this movie Almost everything I did not really remember at all. There were certain beats that I was like, what? And so it was all of it was a pleasant surprise from beginning to end. It was great. Yeah, I love hearing that. Karen Allen, is there an actress that you can fall in love with faster? She's just got this know, bridge man. of freckles across her nose from Scrooge to Indiana Jones. I mean, you just fall in love with her. Anything she's in, anything. She's terrific. <laughs> Even in How Dare I Bring Up Crystal Skull. And, you know, she's <laughs> she's older. It's 2008 or whatever, which I can't believe it's been almost 15 years <laughs> since that. But anyway, uh, even in that naturally aging, beautiful woman, I'm just like, she's still got it, man. 
Um, All right. The government realizes there is an unknown spacecraft in its atmosphere, and the first thing they do is try to shoot it down. Of course, it's very typical in these types of movies. And also in these types of movies, there's always an alien expert who gets the call late night. And Starman, that person, is played by Charles Martin Smith, and that is Mark Sherman from American Graffiti and The Untouchables. When he's coming into the room, he's watching this basketball game and he's carrying this sloppy sandwich and he just knocks all his shit off the the table there to put his (laughs) sandwich and his Coke down. Dude, he has like this huge glob of white goo dripping down his hand, man. It's so disgusting. Like he threw the mayonnaise on super quick. He's just like, I got to watch my basketball. (laughs) Did you notice the Chiron on the screen? It was just the simplest team one, team two. I mean, I'm sure it had the teams, but it was just like conference, team one, team two, and then some scoring on the side. And I was like, come on. That's funny. But yeah, there's always got to be a sloppy scientist. Knocking shit over. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or in this case, his home has just got stuff everywhere. And and that drives me bonkers. Like I don't live in OCD perfection, (laughs) but when I see like sloppy shit everywhere and then somebody just raking it off, I'm always like, oh God. Like, it just drives me crazy. Have you ever been into whatever you're watching this so much that you just knock shit over? And you're like, I've got to watch this on the TV so badly. I'm knocking things over. No. And especially like I have the phone, I've got a tablet, I've got a uh, (laughs) e-reader and I'm like, when I'm, I've got a setting somewhere, if it starts to fall or something, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like the last thing I want to do is like rake a bunch of shit everywhere. (laughs) It just drives me nuts. It's like this trope in all movies that have scientists that always got to be bumbling and oafish and like, I think even in, um. He played a similar bit part in Deep Impact, where he plays a guy at an observatory when a comet is headed toward Earth or a meteor is headed toward Earth. And he's doing the same thing where he's like raking shit off of like a station in panic, like trying to hurriedly type nothing into a keyboard because there's no way what they're doing can type anything. Anyway, it's like a thing with me. It's a thing. <laughs> Never been invested that much on whatever I'm getting ready to watch, right? Knock shit over. <laughs> All right. Starman spacecraft crashes in the forest and it becomes a huge fireball explosion. I got to be honest mm. with you, man. Between Outpost 31 blowing up and the gas station Christine and Starman, dude, he must spend like half his budget on explosions because they're fucking yeah. huge. I sat up at that. I even put in my notes, it's like Apocalypse Now yeah, level shit. Dude. That thing was like, go, 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 go. <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> yes. And it cuts to Karen Allen and she's effing asleep she like sleeps through it and i was like well, how does she sleep even if she's drunk off wine you're not how are you gonna sleep through that and then it kind of shows the location across that large lake and i was like okay maybe but that is a huge <laughs> i do want to come back to this later we're not going to talk about the assimilation because i want to talk about uh, this at the end <laughs> sorry to hold off on that Oh, no, no, no. It's perfect that you wait till the end because when the credits rolled, my jaw hit the floor when I saw who was involved. Well, I do want to talk about his birth, but I want to come back to the reassimilation because that's one of the things I had some major issues with. Yeah, the Starman's birth. Did that scene work for you? Did you enjoy the special effects? Do you care? Do you like it? We always talk about how, or at least we have in the past episodes, movies are time capsules. This movie made in 1984, you really have to get your mind in that frame of uh, reference. What did they have to work with back then? What was cutting edge then? Were they doing the best things they could do then? But also there's budget back then too, which probably isn't as much as a smaller budget movie would be now. So given the time capsule atmosphere of watching this, 84, I was trying to think of other heavy effect movies that were back then. And I couldn't quite land on anything just off the top of my head. So it worked for the time for me, but I totally 
forgot about it when she walks in there and that damn baby starts to turn around. I was like, what? <laughs> I, then it kind of starts flooding back. Like, Oh yeah, that's right. He has this accelerated growth. Okay. And then the weird claymation stop motion part where it kind of starts looking like bridges. I'm like, okay, maybe that's all they had back then. I don't know. Like when he's an adolescent and it's the part where the legs kind of go kark, 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 and, and you know, there's those nasty gelatinous effects, sound effects or whatever. That was kind of like, okay, Rick Baker probably had a hand in that because it kind of had elements of the transformation scene of American Werewolf because there he is behind a couch on a rug. It was lower light, so they could get away with cheating some stuff probably. Long-winded way of answering your question. I guess it did work for me, but only under the guise of when it was, what they had to work with, how were the effects back then, that kind of thing. I found a Chicago Tribune article Carpenter and Larry Franco earmarked a rock bottom 1.8 million of the budget for models and special makeup effects. It was agreed that they would not show the alien prior to its symbiotic transformation into Jeff Bridges. In an early Reisner draft for the script, the alien was described as transparent. You can see its innards, quote unquote. That's why this picture was banging around for forever, continues Franco. They were so hung up on how the alien should look and how it should transform. John wasn't concerned about that. He was concerned with the relationship after the transformation. Columbia liked our more practical approach. Now, this is where it gets a little funny. The biggest names in special effects were all brought in to work on the transformation scene. They hired Joe Alves, who did Close Encounters and Jaws. They hired Dick Smith, who did The Exorcist makeup. Rick Baker, who we just talked about, who did American Wear of London and the Thriller music video. And, of course, Stan Winston, who's known for the Predator, Terminator, and Jurassic Park. In the same Chicago Tribune article, yeah, you see the three biggest makeup effects names in the business, and you say, what's all this about, laughed Smith. A lot of people are going to be anticipating too much. And then Rick Baker added, they went out and got the best and most expensive people in the business, then they made them work with within ridiculous limitations. People who know our work are going to expect the most outrageous transformation scene ever, and they're not going to get it because of the limitations we were given. Frankly, I never thought the sequence as storyboarded was all that exciting to begin with, but Carpenter explained he didn't want a showstopper, unquote. Seriously, as you mentioned, seeing those credits and seeing those names attached to that transformation and then going back and watching it, it is a little bit of a letdown when you know that this is the same guy who's doing the Terminator and the Predator and stuff like that, but... I will say, I feel like the fact that it was kind of buried within the end credits and I <laughs> happened to look up and see it because it is buried in there. I mean, mm-hmm. It goes through the cast. It goes through some first AD stuff. Then I think it has them and, I, and it just has their names. When I saw the three of those, I was like, what? <laughs> but if it was like you said, if Carpenter wanted a showstopper, if he was like, hey, I'll give you a little more money, make it like wow me, they would have put that shit in the opening credits they would have had special makeup effects by and have those three guys right there huge on screen so maybe that's why they buried it deep maybe their comments had something to do with it too it seems like the guys themselves were like okay we'll do what we can that's basically what that sounded like (laughs) that quote whatever that's crazy why wouldn't he want something like from the thing i know i know that's crazy to me the thing that the thing is known for these days is its creature effects and now the star man It's known for not its creature effects. I mean, it is only that one scene, so mm-hmm. I get it. And then there's a glowy hand a bit coming up. That seems easy to do. And there wasn't a lot to that, it seemed. But it did what it needed to do. Maybe it was the effect of the burn he felt still from the thing. Yeah. He gets let go. He gets bought out. He does Christine as a gun for hire. 
maybe he just was like, get it done, do what you need to do and move on because maybe the sting was still there. I don't know. They do get all the, if you agree with them or not, special effects out of the way in the beginning. And then from here on, I would say the movie is pretty smooth for the most part. Yeah, there's hardly any effects. I mean, we'll get to the end, but that big thing, that, that's as show-stopping as the movie gets at the end. And it's really not like you're doing cartwheels. It's just kind of neat. <laughs> but it does what it needs to do, which is probably the lowest that you can say yeah. about some kind of effect scene like that. You know, if you can make it past the Starman birth, you're pretty golden for the rest of the movie. Does it specify in that article what each one of them actually did? It didn't. Like you said, it was just more of them almost kind of clearing their name of, we had some limitations. The baby to me feels Stan Winston. Mm -hmm. The weird claymation part feels like Dick Smith to Mm -hmm. me, or maybe Rick Baker, but it, it has a weird edge to it. Yeah, it's interesting you're breaking this down because, you know, each one of those guys is known for different things. Dick Smith obviously is known for his aging makeup from The Exorcist. Makeup, so maybe yeah. he was doing the back end part of the transformation. And then you're right. There's you know other people who are able to stretch limbs and stuff. It's funny how you think like that. I, that's why I love talking to you. But like the fact that you're actually yeah. breaking down this transformation and like, oh, I think they did this and this. is Well, because it seems to be a collaboration. But at the same time, it really feels like each cutaway to Karen Allen is probably a different makeup guy. Like I said, the baby feels like Winston because it feels animatronic and he's looking back and correct me if I'm wrong, but it looked like they were kind of leaning toward a little green man because his eyes eyes were real weird. It's like they were kind of leaning toward that without really being so obvious about it. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, that's why I think Dick Smith, like to do the makeup, you probably have to do a, a maquette and then maybe build around that maquette. And that's what that thing looked like. It looked like a claymation thing that he just did in different stages that they animated together. And then Rick Baker with the adolescent kid stretched his legs out. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it just felt like every time they cut to her going, oh. Or maybe the reason that it didn't look so great is because Dick Smith was doing the elongated legs and they had Stan Winston doing the aging <laughs> yeah. makeup. I don't know. Maybe everyone was doing the wrong part. <laughs> yeah. Let's mix it up here. Hey, you know what I'm really good at? I'm going to try the other thing. Uh, <laughs> One last thing I wanted to bring up for that scene, the score by Jack Nietzsche. You still don't know if it's a good or bad alien. A lot of this movie is being seen through Karen Allen's character's eyes. She's holding a gun pointed at him. She doesn't know if he's good or bad. And so his little one note tightening the wire and it's just getting higher pitch and higher pitch. His score is really good. It keeps you on the edge. Like, is this guy good or is this guy bad? And those Jeff Bridges buns. Oh, dude, I was about to say, you know, I I was talking to my girlfriend before this podcast. Hey, just so you know, Jeff Bridges is new in this movie. I showed her a picture of what he looked like back in the Against All Odds days. Jagged Edge. He had definitely had no problem walking around the naked. Buns. <laughs> them Bridges buns. I was surprised. I didn't remember that. And he was in that weird pose where he was like all bent over. Yeah. And then he pops up and I was like, Bridges buns. Yeah, all right. Them fabulous <laughs> Baker buns. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you got me. That's it. You got it. Oh, I thought Bridges buns was good. Damn, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I'll be laughing at that like on the way to work tonight. That'd be great. Oh, Uh, dude. You got the genuine reaction, man. I got like tears. Oh, that is good. Awesome. This Um, was only like a couple of years after Tron. Like this is his Tron era. Pete Bridges. Yeah. Before we move on, we didn't even talk about this, but he comes from from an acting family. You know, his brother. His dad. Yeah. Yeah. And his dad from Airplane again. There's a connection there. And a big TV star, too, in the mm-hmm. 50s, Lloyd Bridges. Like sea Hunt, I think, was his big thing, or one of them. I think um, when he did win a Best Acting Award, he actually talked about Sea Hunt in his acceptance speech, if I remember oh, wow. correctly. Yeah. I remember my mom getting all of his kids to uh, entertain at her parties. You know, my dad sitting me on his bed and uh, teach me all of the basics of acting. 
They're rolling Sea Hunt. <laughs> they love showbiz so much. Crazy Heart, right? You won for that? Yeah. All right, moving on. During this scene, we discover that Starman has seven, are we calling them blue balls or silver balls? Or what are we, what are we calling these? <laughs> she said something like those gray things, okay. but blue balls works, considering we already talked about his fabulous balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blue balls and baker buns, gotcha. He's got seven of those. They do all kinds of different magic. He ends up using one to send a text message saying that his observation ship was shot down and that Earth is a hostile environment. Yeah, that was interesting as hell to me. No mm-hmm. remembrance of that. Just subtitles come up. They just take close-ups of his eyes and his mouth. They, yeah, It was like the simplest thing that just conveyed what he was doing. And, and given how we send messages and stuff today in an instant and almost similar to what he's doing, it kind of blew me away. I was like, that's a really great concept back then. Yeah, if you can't steal the uh, speak and spell uh, process from E.T. Oh, I, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're right. Jeez. So, yeah, is that the first one? Is that the first like, similarity? I got a couple others coming up that we're going to have to oh, <laughs> bring yeah. up and mention. So, I didn't yeah. even think of that. Yeah. You know, going into this, knowing that we had talked about Carpenter before, mm-hmm. how E.T. bested the thing. Right, yeah. And really, he was like, oh. And then we joked about how, oh, a couple movies later, he's doing his own alien mm-hmm. thing. And the fact that there's so many connections, I didn't even think about that while watching this yeah like maybe i was trying to approach it too cold i didn't even put together the speak and spell yeah. like uh <laughs> message <Yeah>. oh god <laughs> during this entire process jenny's passed out from shock starman even fires off a gun it does still doesn't wake her up but once he goes outside and does his upside down jeff lebowski meditation thing he does she runs out of the house with no pants on to make a getaway in her badass 1977 ford mustang cobra 2 coupe Obviously, Carpenter loving muscle cars. We just came off of Christine. Yeah. I was like, man, do I want to stop this down and put in Christine and see if that's anywhere <laughs> in the movie? Seriously, I thought this might be something he really liked and just brought over to use again because it was badass. Yeah. Man, that car was great. We're going to talk about cars a little later on, too. Starman catches her trying to escape and gets in the car with her. He uses one of the blue balls to display a GPS roadmap. We're going to talk about this a couple times throughout the podcast, but out of all the things that those blue balls can do, replicating something you can get at a gas station <laughs> which then they do yeah, which then they do yeah. they have the map later <laughs> is that the best use of those blue balls i'm not exactly sure we'll, let's talk yeah, about I that a couple more times Honestly, maybe it's that they can do whatever needs to be done in the moment who knows like, okay we're gonna talk about this later it can bring things back to life and we're wasting it on a digital red 3d <laughs> gps map yeah i don't know that, that seemed like kind of a waste to me so but. they can drive to arizona maybe <laughs> or 300, 300 miles past it and Mr. Mark. Terrible navigator he is, too. Well, I mean, they were distracted enough to forget the 300 miles. They were very distracted in that car. (laughs) (laughs) True. Hey, I do want to bring up the fact that as nice and sweet as Karen Allen is in this movie, she's still the type of person who will run a red light. I really like that aspect that Carpenter infused into the movie because when you have these types of movies, especially when you have an alien form coming down and he or she has to kind of discover what makes human beings human beings, the fact that even the nicest person in the movie is still capable of doing a couple of cutting corner type of things. There's obviously a, a callback joke later on we'll talk about, but I really yeah. like the not so black and white versions of characters that are put into this movie. I like that. Yeah. And that was one of the first times too, that something else from the movie hit home. My parents would always joke about the yellow means speed oh. up. When it first showed her getting to the light and it turning blatantly turning red before she ran it, it showed it yellow first to set up the joke for later. But when she started flooring it, I immediately was like, okay, 
That's right. I remember from this movie, they carried that through for so long. Just when we would go on road trips as a family and stuff, they would bring that up. Oh, man. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, it's another one of those things that kind of washed over me. And I was like, oh, man, this, is, this movie just like keeps giving me <laughs> all this stuff. Feels. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. I'm a carpenter. All right. So uh, Sherman arrives at the crash site of Starman's spacecraft where government officials in hazmat suits are trying to drill into it. He ends up talking to actor Robert Phelan, who played Dr. Wynn from Halloween. That's the guy who's in charge of handling all the exposition about how That's Michael Myers great. can drive a car from being in a mental yes. institution his entire life. Sam Haddonfield is 150 miles away from here. Now, now, for God's sakes, he can't drive a car. He was doing very well last night. He was, he doing, was doing very, very well, well last, last night. night. <laughs> yeah. And then Dr. Wynn to the so-and-so, Dr. Wynn. As he walks away. That's great. I did recognize him, but I didn't think to go, well, I got to stop down and look this guy mm-hmm. up. I was just like, huh. Which brings me to something that I will speak to later when it actually really starts to kick in. There are almost zero Carpenter players in this movie. Almost zero. And that's another reason why it stands out as like the anti-Carpenter Carpenter film, because nobody is hardly in this. When somebody does finally show up, and now that you've mentioned Dr. Wynn, that's kind of somebody else, but not like his other players where they're constantly in the movies for him. There's hardly any. There's maybe two, maybe only one. And that was a big standout to me. He's got bigger stars here in this movie and not that many Carpenter players. Bridges and Carpenter have been trying to work together for years. He was supposed to play McGrady in The Thing and he was supposed to play Snake Bliskin. That's right. From Escape from New York. Wow. And obviously, wow. Kurt Russell ended up doing a fantastic job in those roles. But the Sliding Doors version of Bridges taking over that role, I can kind of see him doing that role. And you could probably see Kurt Russell doing this role, flip-flopping. I could see both, although I'm glad they did what they did. I'm glad Bridges is Starman because the ornithology thing is terrific. The fact that he's constantly looking at everything and moving so quick and a little uneasy on his feet. And not that Kurt Russell couldn't have done that, but his approach, I'm sure, would have been totally different. But yeah, man, Bridges as McCready Pliskin, and Pliskin yeah. or McCready. Yeah, that would be interesting. It. <laughs> Makes me want to watch True Grit because he's got the patch. Mm-hmm. Not that's not the only reason he's got the patch <laughs> equating to Pliskin, but like the way he kind of plays an aged gunslinger that's very like whatever like ugh, with his weird accent or hell or high water if you ever saw that oh dude i love that movie yeah, man. i loved awesome. it while we're at the crash site i want to bring this up sherman introduces himself as working for seti s-e-t-i the search for extraterrestrial yes. intelligence i would like to bring up something here the word extraterrestrial is only one word and i think it's funny that when people think of extraterrestrial, they think of E.T., which is the extra-terrestrial. Even though they're trying to separate themselves from E.T., they're doing these things that are making like an ode to the name of E.T. I thought that was kind of interesting. He's SETI, but he's also part of NSA, which I don't know if SETI is part of NSA or if it's a side thing. He mentioned something about like being on loan or something like that. That's right. That's right. He's on loan to NSA. That's right. You're correct. So I was going to say it didn't confuse me, but maybe that's why I didn't, because he actually (laughs) says about the on loan. There's a moment later that I'll talk more about the government scenes because mm-hmm. I feel like when you get there, I'll, I'll bring it up. I don't want to go into a diatribe. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Copy that. On the car ride, Jenny hears a broadcast on the radio about people seeing flying saucers the previous night. So she starts to question Starman. She even asks him why he looks so much like her dead husband. Instead of answering her, Starman starts singing, I can't get no satisfaction, super off key. <laughs> that sets Jenny off and she drives the car towards an oncoming truck to kill her and Starman. Was this singing that bad? I mean, because she just flips out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first I was like, well, why is she playing chicken with the dude? But I guess her goal might have been just to get him to run off the road. But what a way to get there. Jesus, like, come on. Maybe she is just done with it all. 
I wonder what her motivations were. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you said about his singing. Because uh, that van driver straight up hits that ditch. Mm-hmm. And part of me was like, what if he flipped the thing? Then <laughs> she wouldn't have any help. And her whole thing was, help rescue me, I'm kidnapped. It's like, that dude could have spun his van out. Why'd she do it that way? It's crazy. There's a scene later on where Starman's holding a gun and she goes, just go ahead and shoot me if you're going to shoot me because I don't want to keep living in in fear like this. I would say between that and when we first meet her, she's drinking heavily and watching old home movies and stuff. I wonder if she's reached the end of her rope when she does things like driving onto uncommon traffic. I don't think she gives a shit about life anymore. And that's that's another thing that we're going to talk about this later. But I think this is mostly Jenny's movie. I think a lot of times when you have something that's so foreign to us, the comedy of the movie is to watch how they interact in something that's not their world, the desserts and the red lights and all these other things we're going to bring up throughout the podcast. But in true form, I think this movie is Jenny's movie. So to see her evolution of going from super depressed at the beginning of the film and doing things like running into oncoming traffic versus towards the end when she has a life brewing inside of her, it's telling to see that type of storytelling. Makes me wonder if there's anything extra in whatever script version is out there to explain that, or at least if they had more scenes that delved into that, but they didn't maybe want it to get like a downward spiral of getting lost in her depression, maybe, but that might be a hint of what is in there. Who knows? Back at the military base, Sherman is brought in to open up the spacecraft. Can I just say as a Laserdisc fan, I was giddy as hell when they cracked open the spaceship and they discovered that Starman had brought back the media we sent in space, which happens to be a gold anodized disc. Long live physical media. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's funny, like of all the things from Voyager, he's flying around with that disc. With a laser disc, yeah. I just (laughs) wonder if there was a commentary on there. All right, so so Jenny and Starman have to stop at a gas station and fill up the the gas tank. This is when Starman watches a guy take a piss. That actor that he's watching, that's actor Mickey Jones. He was the guy who plays the mechanic who ripped off Clark Griswold in Vacation. Come on, come on, come on. How much? How much you got? No, no, I'm asking how much the repairs are. I'm asking you how much you got. I recognize him from a bunch of stuff that mm-hmm. I can't possibly name. Yeah, I definitely recognize him. And his scene was funny. A little <laughs> a little homophobic with the <laughs> early uh, into the bathroom when he's staring at him. And he's like, every goddamn yeah. <laughs> place you go. And I was like, oh, man, 84. Here we are. Oh, and then he plants the seed with the up yours thing, which right. is kind of great. Yeah, the callback. That's I another like good that. callback joke. He used to play drums for Kenny Rogers and Bob Dylan, so he, he is a musician. Oh, shit. Once they get back on the road, Starman reads off the note that Jenny left in the women's bathroom, Kidnap Ed. She freaks out, starts driving <laughs> recklessly, then slams on the brakes, causing Starman to hit his head in the dashboard. Again, any single time that he says something that she doesn't like, she uses that car as a weapon. Surprised they didn't cut to a shot behind the car of somebody frantically avoiding them. You know, anytime... Somebody hits brakes in the middle of a road in a movie. I'm like, Ugh, it's almost as bad as somebody raking shit off onto the floor. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, it's so unsafe and so nasty. So at this point is when my notes pick up again. And I was like, why would she let him drive? Like That was my first thing. I was like, he has been erratic at best at walking. So why in the hell would she put him behind the wheel of a car? Like, what? we spoke of the bathroom scene when he's going around to the bathroom. He's like, bl- 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 like flipping around, like doing no fluidity to his thing. movements at all. It's like an etch a sketch. Yeah. And then you cut to him driving. I immediately sat up. I was like, why? I mean, I know she was tired. She's sleeping. That's why. But then you find out later to call back the yellow light joke is why, because she has to go, why did you do that? But 
just the fact of him sitting in that driver's seat. I mean, he's experiencing everything on earth for the first time. What the hell is she doing? And she still doesn't trust him yet. Throughout the movie, there's times where like he goes into the the, uh, the glove box and gets her wallet and starts reading off her personal information. And she's like swatting at his hand trying to grab it. They don't trust each other enough. And so he keeps like, removing the wallet from her grasp. And there's a lot of ups yeah. and downs until the deer scene, which we'll talk about soon. But until the deer scene, she doesn't really fully trust him. So yeah, it's interesting that she would oh, yeah. let him have the keys of the car and get behind it the wheel. Beyond me. It didn't take me out of it. It didn't ruin anything, clearly. It was just a beat that I was like, what? Like I sat up and was like grabbing my phone, type, 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 type. What the hell is she doing? Like, <laughs> Speaking of him being a bad driver, this leads into the callback scene where he sees a, a yellow light pop up, speeds through it. She screams and yells at him, almost causing a car accident. Okay. Okay, are you crazy? You almost got us killed. You said you watched me. You said you knew the rules. I do know the rules. Oh, well, for your information, pal, that was a yellow light back there. I watched you very carefully. Red light stop, green light go, yellow light go very fast. Jenny and Starman stop at Bodark's bus stop. As they walk in for a bite to eat, Starman sees a dead deer tied to the hood of a car in the parking lot. During the scene when they sit down and they're at the diner, Karen Allen's performance while she's telling Starman what the meaning of love is and how painful it is when someone you love dies is her best in the movie, in my opinion. And it always gets me when an actor and it's probably written this way when she stops and she just says shit and mm-hmm. puts her head down. And of course she said it with way more emotion than mm-hmm. just saying the word, but you know, anytime that happens, I'm always, like I said before, like I'm not to be repetitive, but it doesn't take me out of it, but it just kind of makes me look and go, well, where are they going with this? Are they going to jump back in? Or is that her stopping completely because she's overwhelmed? But even then she's doing these layers and layers and stuff because there's her dead husband across from her completely living, but someone else, Everything about him to a T down to the DNA is her husband. And it's just like, and that's where you first find out that he died in an accident too, when she's talking about loving and losing. And, and uh, again, the movie's just like washing all this stuff over you. And you're just like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I start thinking about my dad then. And it's like, no, easy. Just watch the movie. You know? So you're like, she's outstanding. And this is a cross point for the movie too, because as much emotion she's putting into the scene. And I thought it was her best acting in the movie. You got to keep in mind, she's getting ready to ghost him like very next scene. She's going over some things with him like, hey, this is how you use a credit card. This is how you use the keys to cards. She's getting ready to leave him. And it's not until what we're getting ready to discuss next, the deer resurrection stuff, but she's getting ready to leave him. And that's why, again, you mentioned layers. A lot of the things that she's saying have double meanings. She wants to be able to be emotional because he does look like Scott. But at the same time, she's still reserved because she's getting ready to fucking leave this guy because he still is a kidnapper. So there's a lot of different resonances to her performance when she's speaking to Scott until the deer scene. I really like when he questions why she's going over stuff and going over the Mm -hmm. map. Why does this matter? Like, what what does it matter? And she was like, well, you know, if if something were to happen to me or God forbid or whatever she says, like if something were just right. But that answer means double because she knows what death is. She's looking at her dead husband and she's going over the fact that he died in an accident. And so, yes, there are things that can happen. And so when she says that she's getting ready to ghost him. So she's like, well, things can happen as in I'm getting ready to leave in a couple of seconds, but also Things can happen where people die. So you just never know. Even if I was to keep going on this journey, I could possibly die. I'm capable of dying. That answer has double meaning. At the end of the scene, and I'm going to bring this up later on, closer to when we discuss the crater scene, the waitress brings out Dutch apple pie and she makes a big deal about it. She says, uh, I had a wedge of it myself. It's terrific. 
Carpenter is trying to show off Earth's best features, things other planets might not have. And he puts such an emphasis on desserts. And I like the fact that just the most simplistic little things, I think that's kind of one of the great callbacks of this film. Just these cute little scenes like this, that like desserts are such a big deal. Not just Earth too. I mean, American is apple pie, that Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, that symbolism there. Thank God she did describe it because his mimicry, that's his response. Although I did, I loved his face when he puts it in there and he's just like, oh, it like floors him. It's so good. And uh, there's something else later in the movie that that he makes a hilarious (laughs) face too. He gives his O face for the apple pie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The way he's like staring at her and like, oh, and she's like, you like it? And he's like, terrific. Mm -hmm. It's great. I also like that he ate the dessert first and she goes, no, 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 you don't eat dessert in that order. Oh, yeah. He's like, why? Yeah. yeah why? I, I'm why? not from this planet. I don't give right a fuck. Like, I mean, dessert first. And it's so funny <laughs> that how regimented and how based on habits humans are that, you know, we have to eat a eat salad first, then the main course, then you get dessert. And it's like, yeah. you know, no, if you're Starman, you go for the apple pie first. And they kept bringing up small things like that throughout the movie to just keep reminding you that we're dealing with alien. I like that. I yeah. love that he dives right in. I do That's too. Great. Jenny tries to peace out, but she sees Starman outside bringing the deer back to life using one of the blue balls and making his hand glow red. I want to talk about how the fact that they didn't always do a great job of separating themselves from what E.T. was doing because whenever he is bringing something back to life, which is something E.T. does, E.T.'s finger glows red. His hand, when it's holding the blue balls, starts glowing red. I'm like, man, that's E.T. again right there. It's not the f- just the fact that he can resurrect something is very E.T., but to give him a glowing appendage right. is like... We get it. Right. Yeah. It's not like his whole <laughs> body or it's not like he starts levitating. It's nothing that we've seen in other movies, you know, where they're bringing people back to life. It's not like, you know, Neo reaching into Trinity's chest and repumping her heart. It's a glowing yeah. red hand. I do want to say brilliant use of a real live deer in this day and yeah. age, especially, you know, ever since like The Revenant and, and other movies where animals can be very well done in CGI. I love the fact that they had a dosed up. That sounds kind of rude, but I was going to say that there's one shot in particular where it looks like it's drooling like <laughs> crazy out of its mouth as it's coming off the hood. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Right. I don't know if the deer had been hanging out with Lebowski before the shoot, but uh, yeah, it was, just, it was <laughs> yeah. pretty comatose. But I love that it's a real deer that comes back to life. That was awesome. Just kind of comes to and it kind of slides off the hood of the car. And then he just kind of gently pushes it off into the woods again. And it's just a beautiful scene. Again, Nietzsche's music just raises up. Yeah, it's it's quite beautiful, beautifully done. I did notice the drool a bit. So I was like, (laughs) okay, they, I was like, I'm sure they didn't do anything untoward and people were on set. But no, it's powerful. It's really great. I love how they don't ever really go close on it either. The fact that you're seeing it from her point of view. They do get a little closer than probably what she's seeing, but the fact that they don't show the deer head actually turning up to camera or show the deer point it's of all view. It's one shot. Like yeah, there. it's great. And again, helped by Nietzsche's music, just swelling and swelling. Yeah. Again, this is the scene that turns Jenny's character into someone who can start relating with Starman and start to go on the journey of getting him to his rendezvous point. But if you need a scene to sway your opinion, I would say hearing that score swelling and swelling and swelling and watching him bring a real deer back to life. For me, as a just someone watching the movie, I was like, holy shit, no wonder. And thinking ahead, the shot of her reacting to what he's doing really mirrors the final shot of the movie. And where you see a realization happen or you see something come across her and that same shot from the diner of mm-hmm. her, just that unbroken thing besides a couple of cutaways to see what she's seeing which is what they don't do at the end, which is genius. We'll we'll get there. But anyway, uh, the reaction shot of her is just pitch perfect. It's she's doing what she needs to do to the nth degree. Carpenter is like holding there. It's great. 
I did want to bring this up. The hunter of the dead deer tries to hit on Jenny using pretty much the worst pickup line of all pickup lines. He oh says, my God. excuse me, miss, you strike me as a meat eater, but he has dip in his mouth and it sounds like he yes. says meteor. Excuse me, miss, you strike me as a meteor. I could fix you up with a nice haunch of venison, maybe even a shot of pork if you could... Wait a second. Yeah, it fits. It works. <laughs> he just called her crater face. <laughs> <laughs> so the hunter sees the deer is gone from the hood of his car, and he goes outside and starts punching Starman right in the face. The person who, who punches him in the face is stuntman Ted White. Oh, yeah. Briefly, <laughs> Jason from uh, the Corey Feldman classic <laughs> final chapter, right? the 13th final chapter. I talked about uh, the Cowboys with John Wayne. He goes back to John Wayne days oh, nice. of stuntman and acting. He's done a bunch of stuff. When Starman hits him back, he says bingo, and then he spits blood on Ted White. I was like, oh, God, that got a little gross. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. What's funny is I didn't think of it as blood right away, and I was like, well, how does he have dip? And I was like, oh, it probably is blood from his... <laughs> One more thing about that stunt guy. He plays an asshole in this, but if you've ever seen the Crystal Lake Memories oh, okay. uh, documentary, that six hour, eight hour, whatever, mm-hmm. how long, long as hell. When they talk about his work, the director of that movie, there was one particular actress that dies in a raft, kind of getting stabbed from up underneath. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. It was yeah, like, yeah. Free, yeah, you remember? She's all just, well, right, I, just I know her because just, she's from Weird Science and childhood favorite American Ninja starring Michael Dudikoff. Uh, Go down that rabbit hole, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So she was pretty much nude in that raft, Mm -hmm. and it was freezing on the day. So Ted White is sitting there off screen in his chair. They're in between takes. She's still nude out there, and the director's not doing anything for her because she's in the middle of the lake. They can't exactly run a coat out to her or whatever, but she's complaining about how cold it is. And Ted White had to stand up for her to the director of that movie. And say, like, look, man, we're sitting here forever in between shots. Do something about her. Like, go go get her a coat or something or give her some, like, coffee or something. So he had to, like, stand up. He was, like, A1 nice guy nice. as Jason in the weird, weird face cutout makeup, you know, around his head, like, saying, get her a coat or something. <laughs> like, So to, to be playing an asshole and a serial, like, uh, a slasher, it's interesting that he actually stepped up and, like, did the did the right thing. But, yeah, that dude, he's he's good in this. He's got several lines in this. He's good. His weird pickup line aside, you know, he's like, I'm going to get that son of a bitch, whatever he says to <laughs> yeah. him right now, you know, like. <laughs> All right. They take off in the car again, but there's a police report that goes out over the scanner about a 77 Mustang with Wisconsin plates. The two police officers who call it in and chase after them are played by very young versions of MC Ganey, who played yeah. uh, Big John Brittle from Django Unchained. And he was awesome in Breakdown with Kurt Russell. And Lost. He was on Lost for a bit. And then the other actor is Dick, I mean, Dirk Blocker. <laughs> That's his real name. <laughs> we'll be talking about him for our Prince of Darkness podcast, but he also played the funny neighbor from Poltergeist, the guy trying to carry the six pack with the bicycle. Yeah, I did recognize MC Ganey right, mm-hmm. right away. Yeah. The other guy I didn't really recognize, but that's pretty funny. But. Jenny and Starman check into a hotel. Getting out of the car, Starman doesn't lock his door. He doesn't know to do that. And it's super quick, but Jenny leans over and locks the door for him. I like that Carpenter doesn't draw attention to that. No close-ups or anything, but it's these subtle little acting things that Karen Allen does. Unless you're paying attention to all these finite details, you wouldn't notice that she's locking the door for him because he doesn't know to do that. He just He's following the North yeah. Carolina crowd because there's like a, a Tar Heels game that just ended. And so like there's like 100 yeah. fans checking into the same hotel. I noticed there was a few people carrying big megaphones. And I was like, really? An 84 is still using <laughs> megaphones? That's like something I would think of in the 50s and 60s. Like I was like, megaphones? It stuck out a little too much. I was like, what? <laughs> but no, I get what you're saying. Like at this point in the movie, after the scene, the deer scene, she is all in. She's mm-hmm. at least going to 
write out what he needs to do, get him to where he needs to go. When they check into the hotel, she does that scene where she starts undressing in front of him. And it's not until he starts oh. like up and downing her like a pervert where she's like, oh, shit. Yeah, this isn't <laughs> Scott and, and forgets. But she's starting to kind of loosen up a little just bit. Familiar. Around. Yeah. Yeah. She's uh, the familiar thing of him being there despite the weirdness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She almost is straight up just like behaving the way she would have if it was the two of them checking into the Holiday Inn. Yeah. That was a nice little beat. I was like, huh. Not that I wanted her to take the, you know, pop the top off or anything. I wasn't like, here we go. Like, I wasn't <laughs> this is what I've been waiting either. an hour for. <laughs> no, no. But, but I immediately was like, oh, I get it. She's just comfortable as hell. Then, thankfully, she realizes, no, wait, what am I doing? She actually says that. It didn't help like, that he was silly. up and down in her, though. Yeah, he was kind of like, because uh, at this point, he's a little more eloquent in his speech, it seems. I paid attention to that he was actually speaking in coherent, complete His sentences without being His speech starts routing choppy. out the corners. I, I mentioned Etch-A-Sketch earlier, but again, he's just so rigid. His movements and his speech is very domo arigato, very, very rubato. Yeah. But he was sent down here to be an observer. He goes into the speech yeah. in, in the hotel about how he can remember every single thing. I remember everything I see, I read. And then he says, and everything I feel, feel, you know, again, he's got a terrible sense of direction, which we'll bring up. So maybe he wasn't the best person to send, but they shot this out of order. Bridges would take down notes as to where his speech and cadence needs to be at particular parts of the script. That's cool to know. This is the first thing that I noticed it. But part of me was wondering, not remembering if I was tracking it after this scene or not to make sure like, oh, did they get this right or slightly wrong? And maybe he's a little better now and then he's back to it the next scene. But yeah, this is at least the first scene that it was really obvious to me that he's actually connecting and speaking and it's actually making a, so like robotic. you said, a rounded he off sound sense. like yeah. Scott a little bit more, yeah. Pretty soon after that, they get a knock on the door from a drunk North Carolina fan. He says, hey, this is none of my business, but if that's your car down there in the parking lot, there's a couple cops trying to jimmy the lock and get into it. And I'm going to bring this up later on, but with barely any convincing, they're always able to get someone to run interference for them. But the drunk North Carolina fan throws an entire vending machine down the stairs right in front of the cops, which, again... That would land someone in jail. And the fact that he was willing to do that with not even really knowing these people at all. Yeah, that's a good point. That's funny. I didn't think of that. Also, this guy's performance when Jeff Bridges opens the door, slightly better than Carpenter's performance in The Fog, I must say. (laughs) Just slightly. A little bit better. Wasn't there wine involved with both those scenes? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was supposed to be drunk, I guess. I just thought it was funny. He's like, hey, is that your car, man? I'm like, oh my God. I am finished with my work, father. <laughs> so they take off from that distraction. The cops chase after them, and during the pursuit, Starman reaches under the front seat and finds the handgun and holds it up. That causes the cops to shoot Jenny with a shotgun. Now, fucking straight up, Mark. I hadn't seen this movie in a while, and when I watched your Blu-ray, I jumped. I was like, whoa, I did not remember that happening. And I definitely did not remember the insert shot he took of Jenny's entire rib cage, you know, with buckshot wounds. Holy shit. That was a little bit the old Carpenter coming back right there. I was like, holy crap, man. I am exactly the same. I sat up and went, oh, fuck yeah dude (laughs) just unfiltered i was like whoa do not remember this i like was saying it out loud in the living room like do not and why the hell wouldn't he aim for the tires like that's the first thing i thought i know mc gainey what are you doing not the innocent passenger that they're supposed to be saving from the kidnapper they shoot the the person who's being kidnapped in the rib cage yeah it's like he's got a gun i'm like okay but why do you gotta shoot her like holy shit man i I did not see her get shot not remember Yeah, I did not remember that happening. That flipped me out, man. The car gets forced down a blocked-off road due to the overturned oil rig. 
The car crashes into the <laughs> oh, rig, causing another one of the carpenter's signature explosions. I mean, that fucking thing goes 100 feet tall. That is a huge explosion from that oil rig. Clearly blue screen, green screen, whatever they did back then. Anytime his blue balls did some kind of effect, you could see a blue screen somewhere. Like even earlier in the movie when they're at that, uh, which way do I go left or right? And he brings up the map. You can see that they shot that in a studio so that they could manipulate because around her hair, even the woods outside superimposed, which is a simple thing, just putting a background in or whatever. But they had to do it because they wanted all the control to be able to put the map in there. So clearly, if there's flames going up really, really crazy high, like you were saying, you're not going to put your actors in there. <laughs> so, yeah, they've got to superimpose them in front of it, but also the blue force field yeah. that his his balls create <laughs> time capsule thing again man it's like that's how they did it back then i think it looks fine again if carpenter was just wanting it to show what it needed to and just get the story going then fine it did that but again like you said nietzsche's music really elevates everything that's going on so you see this super imposition and this effect the sweeping music cue that comes in you're just in he rescued them and there he goes and nobody's thinking to look because nobody's around it it's so damn hot probably so that's how they make their escape to the glorious uh, model home, <laughs> which I thought was a great little turn. The ones that you can't get around if they're going on the highway. <laughs> That's when Starman shows in his hand that he only has two of the, the blue balls left and he uses one of them to, to heal Jenny. Now, I really like the scene. A, I like that it's not instant. I like that it takes all day to heal Jenny. It's just Nietzsche's music just layered over a bunch of like scenic shots of America because it's a road trip and they just show all these different pieces together like landscape shots and it goes from day to night yeah they were able to utilize the fact that it took all day so while they're burning a day they're at least on their way there and that's the other thing they do they show you the progression of your main characters from one point to closer to the other that they're trying to get to and yeah just gorgeous shots too like with his signature panavision widescreen shots there's that harvester at one point in the side. So you're clearly seeing where they're making their way across to, like from, I believe it's Wisconsin is where they start. And it's like all the way kind of at a diagonal down to Arizona. And so, you know, they're still kind of in uh, the Midwest, possibly about to get into New Mexico. And it's great. They're just, they're using that montage brilliantly to do like three different things. I did want to bring up again, in the final moments of the healing process, Starman's hands start to glow red, just like E.T. Just bring that up again. <laughs> and then there's kind of a cool scene where he kisses her from above and she's like layered in the bottom and he's kissing her from the yeah. top. And I thought it was kind of a cool little Sleeping Beauty scene. Yeah, because then right after that, she does wake up. I yeah. mean, it is time passage after, but yeah, it is sort of like that happens. There's a long dissolve and then she sits up. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. I didn't put that together uh, when I watched it. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Watch it again and you're like, oh, that does neat. look like Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Although I must admit, when when I first sat down to watch this, I was like, so me and Deke are going to talk about a romantic comedy <laughs> slash buddy movie. Okay, cool. All right. We'll do this. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and now look at this. <laughs> yeah, no. We're almost there. We're almost there. <laughs> Love scene coming up. Love scene coming up. Let's get to it. <laughs> when jenny wakes up oh, uh, after dude. being dead for quite some time she grabs a ride with some random hot rodder who has a car that looks <laughs> just like something out of american graffiti so it looks yeah. like charles yeah. martin smith drove it over from the set there yeah, that car is yeah, cool but it definitely seemed like that was just carpenter like putting random awesome cars in my movies i don't give a shit if they should fit or not yeah like i need a fast car to just catch up with them right like is really all it is but yeah it, it stands out for multiple reasons just the fact that it is what it is, but where it is. She has the entire military after her. 
Yeah. With this open top. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> God, it's not the most. Uh, also, like the flat land of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It really is like, what is that doing here? Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. I mean, again, not to bring up Crystal Skull again, <laughs> but the opening of that movie has two hot rodders. And, and I don't know if they're in that kind of car, but there they are drag racing on like a pretty flat Nevada thing. So maybe that's a thing expecting some like shitty uh prairie dogs to come <laughs> popping out <laughs> what the fuck not you too <laughs> so uh, that hot rodder is played by sean stanick the robert blake murder you and i are oh, lost God, lost okay. highway fans of, of all things one of the most of famous murder you, of all things i thought you would bring up nope. I, it was not this <laughs> well we're going there the robert blake murder Famously, he said that he left his gun at a restaurant, goes into the restaurant to retrieve his gun. He comes back. His wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, is dead from a gunshot wound to the head in the car. One of the most famous murder trials of all time. Sean Stanick, he's the neighbor of Robert Blake. So Robert Blake went to his house, knocked on his door and starts freaking out and saying, hey, my wife is shot in the head. My wife is shot in the head. Sean Stanick is the guy who calls into 911. So all the court TV specials that air the Robert Blake murder trial. It's his voice, Sean Stanick's voice, that the Hot Rodder's guy. voice. It's on the 911 call. My name is Sean Stanick. I heard a loud banging on the door. I open the door and I see him and I go, Robert Blake? I was stunned. I had no idea what, what the hell was going on. And he was just yelling, you got to help me. You got to help me. He was manic. Is she conscious, Robert? No, she's not conscious. She's breathing. Is she breathing? Yeah, they're coming. They're coming. Are the gentleman still there to report it? It's Robert Blake's wife. That's the fucking guy driving Karen Allen around in the hot rod. Crazy, it's such right? a random thing. I know. Of this weird hot rider in Starman. Yes. That stands up. I'll take you. Like right. all those, that line of dudes at the bar. So random. That is the weirdest thing. I man. know. Isn't that crazy? What the hell? I know. <laughs> That is weird. I'm going to have to look that up too now. That is the weirdest. It's crazy, right? That's the weirdest Most shit. random ass yeah. fact I think I've ever found doing one of these podcasts. Sidetracked complete. <laughs> <laughs> You've been sidetracked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, that's got to be the most random one yet. God. I'm hoping to top it later on down the line, but that, uh, I might not ever top that. <laughs> when he smokes a cigarette, or first of all, when he starts imitating George uh, Buck Flower, that really made me laugh too. And he's like, I make maps or whatever, like just doing his voice. And then when he smokes that cigarette, that was the grossest damn cough <laughs> I've ever seen. And he lets it just go and go and go. He says in the commentary so that that, that coughing scene almost made him throw up. He's like, I was really putting it effort did. into it. Yeah. yeah, it looked like he was going to. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there like, I don't remember this. If he throws up in this car, I'm going to be like, <laughs> like it looked like he did a couple of times or he was about to like, yeah, it was so gross. you just brought up the fact that he said, cause George Buck flowers, he says, what do you do for a living? He says, I make, what do you he, do? Yeah. I make maps. He's the worst fucking directional person in the world. Like the fact that he said, I make maps, <laughs> he's terrible with directions. When you're experiencing a certain thing on earth for the first time True. as a human, maybe you're like, I'm going to pass out for a few miles. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Also, the back and forth between him and Buck Flower is pretty funny. Like when he says, I make maps, he's like, you make a lot of money doing that. And then he just repeats, I make maps. He's like, (laughs) I don't make that much cooking either. Like it's it's great. It's like one of those, like, I don't want to say like it's Forrest Gump-y or anything, but like just his normal response elicits just another response from somebody else. Like he is actually answering the question when he didn't answer anything. He just repeated something again. But this guy was like, oh, that's right. You know, like that kind of shit really makes me laugh. And the two of them were just gold in that scene. 
So the Hot Rodder and Jenny catch up to Starman at a military blockade. To which to which Buck Flower says, what the John, when they roll up. And <laughs> yeah. I thought, what? I rewound it and turned on the closed captioning. I was like, did you say what the John? <laughs> yeah, he sure did. What the hell does that mean? Like, what the John? Say, Carpenter, do you mind if I just use your name here? I got nothing else for this line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I felt like maybe it was a toilet thing. Like, what the shit? Yeah. But what the John? I've never heard that before. Super weird. Sorry, not to, no, it's not all right. to distract. The hot rodder, Sean Stanick. Lights an entire gas tank on fire, throws it out, a big explosion, distracts all the military so Jenny can run over and grab Starman and they can take off again. Like, no convincing at all. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll set off an explosion that's going to set the military <laughs> yeah. off on a chase for me. Maybe he should have uh, learned from that and done the same thing to Robert Blake's apartment yeah. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll help you. And he just flames yeah. up a gas can Molotov <laughs> and throws it in there. I can cover all the evidence. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I didn't even think of that when I was watching the movie, like that, how they just go, hey, help us We're out. We're going to talk about it I mean, again with, with, with Charles Martin Smith later on. But I mean, there's like absolutely no yeah. convincing for these people. The Native Americans that they just jump into the yeah. back of their pickup truck after the distraction. I was like, yeah. you could not do that today. Right, you couldn't yeah. just run up. They don't even ask them anything. Mm-hmm. This speaks exactly to your point. All she says is, hey, and then they immediately jump in and the guy's mm-hmm. like, okay, driving. Yeah. They don't tell them anything. I mean, it advances the story. It gets them where they need to be. But at the same time, I was like, if you made this movie today, there's no way they're just jumping into the back of a pickup truck without getting their head blown off. Probably it's crazy. Um, you were talking about them riding in the back of the, the truck with the Native Americans. Starman asked Jenny if she has a baby and she says, no, I can't have babies. But there's a lot of questions that are going out of order here. Did he not want to ask her if she had a baby before he kidnapped her and took her across the country? Because if there's like, if there's a small infant back at her Wisconsin house, it's just been, un, you know, unmanned for a couple of days. That's a dick move on his part. That's, that's so. a problem. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to talk about this. This is something like, like my wrap up stuff in my own notes. Because it was something that I commented on a few times throughout, but we haven't talked about it because it's easy to skip over is that all of the government scenes are just clangy expository stuff that they didn't show a damn thing. Everything that is would be interesting with them happens off screen and they just talk about it when they kind of get together for like a debriefing. It's not like it weakens the movie because they're not long. They're quick scenes, but they're nothing but exposition dumps. And if if they had gone to her place to investigate, if they had shown it to us, I should say, her place, we would have seen something like that. So it's like, okay, if there's no baby there, fine. But I get what you're saying for comedic value. It's like, what? Why ask that now? (laughs) Right, yeah. You just took her on the road without really any kind of thing, but with any search of, you know, the premises or anything, right. but yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's funny. Plus, this heavy-ass scene of her dropping the knowledge that she can't have kids is done in the most windy conditions. It's odd to me that the heaviest scene of the movie, almost, with her admitting this and, and acknowledging that she can't have a child, is done in this drab day in the back of a moving truck where she's constantly moving her hair out of her face, and you can hear the wind in the recording equipment that they're using. It's just an odd thing that they didn't pick some other moment for that to happen. Yeah. Where they could control it a little bit Because more. the very next scene, they grab another ride with uh, onto a moving cargo train. They end up having sex. It should have been, I hate to say a seed, it should have been dropped a little sooner in the film. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas sooner, like, or, sooner in the film, or maybe even this, what if they, they have the sex scene? And in the scene immediately after, where he blatantly says... I gave you a baby tonight. Like, 
I, I know that but they were probably thinking they they need to have it either like you're saying sooner or like like you're saying would have been better if it was sooner or oh let's put it in right before so that it's more impactful when he says that they could have had her drop that knowledge right before he said that and it would have been the same as butting it right before so why wouldn't they use the scene in the box car where there's a lot more control like i get it's not as sexy leading into love making to go oh yeah we tried we can't have kids i can't have kids i cannot have kids like oh well here we go you know she's not going to want to do anything after telling a what amounts to a stranger this information so i get that they put it earlier and there's a little time passage but for us as an audience you're right it's butted right up against it so it might as well just be like yeah i gave you a baby great congrats here you go i did love that scene to me it was very moving very emotional and the fact that he tells her what's going to happen with her kid is it, that blew me away this is the reason to make the movie right here this mm -hmm. scene mm -hmm. because bridges is so good in his delivery of just matter-of-factly telling her because at that point his speech is perfect so he's just telling her like it is he's gonna grow up he's gonna know everything i know he's gonna be a teacher he's gonna spread that knowledge you know like it's it was the best scene in the movie to me with or without the weird placement of when she can't gotcha. have a kid you know like yeah. it, it still moved me i was like man as a kid, I'm never going to remember that scene. So <laughs> I, I might as well have been seeing it for the first time tonight. And yeah. I was really, I was really moved by that. I, I just, that scene was the reason this movie was made. It was just beautiful. I'm wondering why certain questions or certain things are going out of order. He says to her, tonight I gave you a baby. And then the very next thing he says, well, if you don't want it, I can stop the birth. And I remember thinking, did you not want to ask before, you know what I mean? Because like, you're getting ready to leave the planet in a couple seconds here. Here's a lifetime of commitment for a child. I'm getting ready to take off, <laughs> yeah. which is a recurring yeah. theme with Bridges, by the way, between him and Lebowski. He's like always <laughs> impregnating women with no follow through on being a father at all. Yeah, I did have a funny thought after they were done where I was like, is she about to kick her legs up and hold them and start rocking like <laughs> yeah. Julianne Moore? Yeah. Post coitus. Like, Please, be a, yeah, the weirdest Lebowski connection. I could see where the order is a weird thing. Yeah. That maybe it didn't like clang around as much for me, but. I was just looking at it because I knew he's leaving the planet soon. He gave her birth and offered her an abortion all in the same two-minute sentence. And I just thought that was a little out of order, I guess. It's, it's, a, little, <laughs> just, it's a little weird. Yeah, yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. But I could see why there's no way she would take him up on that particular right, offer yeah. just because it is, you know, because he says he will be human. He's going to have both alien and Scott's DNA. So it's a piece of Scott. And I guarantee you, again, haven't seen the show, didn't read synopsis of the TV show, but there's no way she's not naming that kid Scott. Now, you brought it up. He says, uh, you know, it will be human. It will be a baby of your husband. It will also be my baby so is that a threesome they just had <laughs> in a way i mean maybe <laughs> dna threesome for sure there's all kinds of uh, ingredients in that stew <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> jenny asked starman to show her which star he comes from so that she can show her unborn child you know later on where her father comes from and he points to the wrong fucking star and this is what i'm talking about At first yeah it's, he's like not so even weird. close he's like he's pointing like way far <laughs> off to the side and he's like nope nope it's not that one he's like it wasn't it even close it's not there. it's not like he yeah. moved his finger an inch it was like way over to the other side yeah. of the he's like oh here it is because <laughs> the very funny. next scene they land in vegas and she goes oh oops we went 300, 300 miles past our destination i'm thinking that that was right after he pointed to the wrong fucking home planet. Like, this guy sucks at directions, man. <laughs> that is yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> uh, so they're in Vegas. Magically, Jenny is missing her wallet. So Starman has to do his little Rain Man routine where he goes around touching slot machines. They get a bunch of money. They're able to rent a car again. Ah, which, may I say, the first thing that hit me was that the wallet was probably still in the glove box. And so it's burned beyond recognition. You know, after that, they're in the model home. Then the 
Native American truck mm-hmm. than the train. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, that's probably where it is. But I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, great. She doesn't have her wallet. But no insert shot? No, nothing. They could have mentioned it. Like they could have said it. Not yeah. that it needs said really, but it would at least like give them a reason. But if you look at like one of the greatest road trip movies of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, there's an entire backstory to the wallet getting stolen from the little guy who yeah, sneaks yeah. in and takes off with the wallet. Then the other <laughs> one gets burnt to a crisp. But I mean, so those wallets and their missing money gets a backstory. So it's no surprise. She just is walking down Vegas Boulevard, tapping her where's back my wallet? pocket. And she's where's like, my oh, wallet? where's my wallet? And yeah. I'm like, oh, that for me kind of felt a little shoehorn. Like, well, that's the exposition we need to get into the next scene where he can touch the slot machines and make them hit the jackpot and stuff. Jenny and Starman stop off in the crater. There's a gift shop there. They stop off there. Here's another thing. During this scene, Jenny asks Starman if he has a girlfriend back on his planet. And again, you just had sex with the guy. Did you not want to ask if he had a girlfriend before you let him put a baby in you? But again, a couple questions went a little out of order here. In the middle of the act, in the love scene, that would have been a good place for her to maybe pause down a bit and go, hey, do you have anybody? (laughs) But again, I mean, I I get it. Like sometimes like I'll be talking to you or another friend at work and just go, I knew there was someone I was going to ask you. I can't remember what it is. So maybe that's what this is. Maybe she's like, oh, shit, that's right. I was going to ask you when you were sliding in me. When your when your little star man was making his journey, when your little comment, maybe I should have asked you that. Yeah. <laughs> she's asking about his girlfriend, and then she's literally saying the words "I wish, I wish I could," and she's getting ready to say the sentence "I wish I could go with, to your planet with you." Because at this point, I think she's fallen back in love with this version of Scott. Yeah. Oh, oh, another thing you're about to talk about Charles Martin Smith coming into the mm-hmm. gift shop, right? This is an hour and thirty five minutes in to the movie. It's the first, I don't know if you can hear my cat. I can, but, yeah, that's uh, all right. The, and now you can see the cat. All right. Um, it's the first, an hour and 35 minutes in, the first true John Carpenter moment of the movie where it's all straight Carpenter. It's when that trooper walks in and you think, oh, maybe he's just there to get a pie. And then he says, morning, folks. Is that your Cadillac outside? Cut to some reactions. They kind of look at each other. When Karen Allen looks back at him, when Jenny looks back at him, it cuts to a close shot of him, darn, 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 and the camera starts to dolly left mm-hmm. as those cruisers roll up. That whole shot of dollying and the music, straight Carpenter. It's the first time in this movie that Carpenter really gets his style in there with a fucking crowbar, just jamming it in there. And it works because it's the foreboding moment of the movie. Of course. they are so We close. just spent yeah. the past hour and 50 minutes with these people, and if they don't get past this one last hurdle... They think they've got it made. They're hanging out at the fucking gift shop eating cherry cobbler. Yep. They think they got it. She's even having dialogue. Yeah, in a different she even car. says, you're going to yeah, make it. Perfect. You're going to make it home. You're going to, aren't you happy? Aren't you, you know, and that's why they start talking about like, do you have a girlfriend at home? Cause she's like, you're going to make it. And then that cop yeah. shows up and it's like, oh fuck, no way, yep. man. Yep. Yeah. And Carpenter chooses that moment to like surgically put in, I just said crowbar earlier, which is different than a, a, a <laughs> scalpel surgery. But yeah, he chooses that moment to really get that Carpenter beat mm-hmm. and it, it works and it shines and it kind of makes me go, man, maybe he wasn't given the total freedom to put those moments everywhere. Or maybe he made a conscious decision not to do it and to do something more mainstream because of what happened with E.T. and the thing. Who knows? Either way, I loved that beat. I mm-hmm. loved that moment. And it really like I rewound it a time or two just because I was like, yes, like I wanted to see that. Doom, 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 doom. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are at your very best when things are worst. The line of the movie, it's great. And Charles Martin Smith's like, 
complete awestruck reaction to everything he's doing and his like wherewithal to sort of compose himself to ask him the questions he does to me. And I know where you're going with the convincing thing because it's yet another moment. I feel like this one of all of them is the one that you can buy because he's been against the treatment of what they're going to do to him if they get him from the, the moment he found out about it. So hearing that comment coming from an alien being, he's totally bowled over. He's won over. He's in awe. Right before that, though, there's a scene where he sits down. He's kind of starstruck, literally. And he <laughs> says, is there anything I can do for you? And without even really get to finish his sentence, it just drops your heart. But Karen Allen says, you can let him go. Like, there's like crying yeah. in her voice when she says that. There is such regret in his voice when he says, I can't. I, I really can't let him go. And I don't know if he's doing that because of the government job or it's possibly a little bit of selfishness there. Like, I can't let him go because I've been looking for an alien my entire life and now I have him sitting at the same table as me. But I do think the convincing between the vending machine guy and the hot rodder, I think it was a little too quickly lived. But like you said, with Sherman, it's a little more believable. But I think we could have drawn out the scene just a little bit more to take a little more convincing. But no, I get that totally. I get it. And maybe it's the two thoughts inside of Charles Martin Smith's character of my job's just been threatened because I stood up to this guy who's essentially my boss, even if it is on loan. My job has been threatened. And at the same time, I am curious about him. And my whole life, I've been wanting to do this, to meet an alien being. And maybe he's trying to convey that through his performance and mm -hmm. it comes out as just awestruck or whatever. But maybe that's what it is that helps him to kind of push him over to the edge of like, forget my job. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter. It's not as important as this. This is a being. This is a live, actual being that I could help. And that's what I've been trying to do, you know, without spoon feeding that. Maybe that's what's going on. I agree with you. Like they stack the deck toward uh, as an audience, us buying this helping mm -hmm. that, that he does, that his character does by just convincing the troopers to just let him go. And then that's the other thing is like, you know, the troopers are like, oh, they're not the right people. They're too old or something like they mentioned something about the age, yeah, but he lets them go. Like, yeah, no, because like, he goes, they, they fit the description. Yeah, yeah. No, no <laughs> fingerprinting, no nothing. Just lets them go. I a little too easy on the, on the convincing all around there, but th that's yeah. just me. All right, so Jenny and Starman drive quickly to the Meteor Crater. This is a real location. This used to be called the Behringer Crater. It's in Arizona. It's yeah. 0.737 miles in diameter, and it's 560 feet deep. It's 50,000 years old, and it was going 30,000 miles per hour when it impacted Earth. But it's a great place to have a showdown. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Is this the crater that they think was the one that caused the dinosaur's extinction? You know what's funny? I want to say that Jeff Bridges asked Carpenter that in the podcast. In the and he said, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep saying fucking podcast. I meant commentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, essentially, I mean, what, what are commentary what are we doing here? Like <laughs> we are doing early. a commentary. The, the ancient form of podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <commentaries. laughs> no, I think he says it was another meteor that hit that oh, they okay. think caused the dinosaurs. Is that what you're going to ask? The dinosaur? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the, yeah. the extinction of the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a huge yeah effing it's almost, crater, it's almost a mile long oh and before you go on like when starman kisses charles martin smith as a copy as an imitation of it so funny it's so good and it's the funny and it's also a break it's good i think especially back in the 80s when you weren't allowed to show men on men kissing i love the fact that bridges was willing to do that with charles martin smith because that's what an alien would do he doesn't know you know yeah. what i mean like earlier in the movie yeah. during the bathrooms are separated to men and women and she says no you go into this bathroom you're a man i'm a woman i go into this bathroom he doesn't know that shit so when he goes to kiss yeah. charles martin smith goodbye he doesn't know that that's something you don't do back in the 80s. Yeah, he just thinks that's the way you say yeah, goodbye. Yeah. Which even later on, that comes back in kind of. But Charles Martin Smith, too, the fact that he was game to do it and mm -hmm. the fact that he had to be the straight guy about it and yeah. not even really react. 
and that trooper had to be this right guy and not react right in the middle of them when he pulled back and he was just like goodbye like played for comedy succeeds on every level it's great so you mentioned Apocalypse Now a little earlier, but, you know, very next scene, they're not using CGI helicopters. So they have like this fleet of 30 helicopters flying over the crater. They have orders to fire missiles at both Jenny and Starman. Right around this attack is when Starman's Uber ride shows up, an enormous mirrored sphere. Like I said earlier in the podcast, uh, I mean, in the commentary. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what, <laughs> like I said earlier, like I feel like that, if anything, Carpenter was wanting to gloss over the transformation to really kind of showcase a big moment at the end. At first, when it's coming down, you're like, what is it? Like, And, and maybe it's the effects of the time, but I, I found myself going, okay, is it a wormhole that he's just going to rocket through and, and be lifted up and go through? Then he takes the side shot and you see that it's, a huge thing that looks like a planet, but clearly couldn't be because there's no way a planet would get close to another planet, whatever. You know what I mean? The gravity and all that station. shit. So it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's no moon. No. Uh, so clearly it's some type of a ship. And we already have seen a slightly spherical with like the point, mm-hmm. uh, the ship that he arrived in. So maybe it's like the mothership of that one. It does its job. It's super wide. So you can get perspective of how big the thing is. I could have sworn when the general or whoever fox that leads the thing when he gave a weapons hot standby when you're ready that when they copy that let's go helicopter pilot says it i swear that's carbon oh it is yeah yeah did you notice that yeah i swear it's his famous mustache you can't uh can't not recognize it yeah and plus i kind of recognize his voice because he has that kind of gravelly thing it's like copy that let's go and i was like oh man it had to be carpenter and then he puts himself back in it when when the ship comes down and he looks up at it. And I was like, ah, Carpenter again. So <laughs> I didn't, re- as a kid and even as a fan through the years, watching and rewatching his stuff, I totally spaced at how often he cameos in movies a la Hitchcock. Like yeah. I totally forgot that he basically puts himself in everything. Yeah. And it's almost helicopter briefly. pilots, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I enjoyed seeing his cameo mm-hmm. and the fact that they're shooting at them is batshit crazy with missiles too i'm like what those are explosions going off between yeah, the cops I, I, shooting out her rib cage and them firing missiles they don't give a shit about jenny they want complete control of Starman, dude at, at any cost yeah, they don't give a damn in that regard it, it's a good finale he does a great job as he does to mm-hmm. really ratchet that suspense and keep you guessing and bullets and explosions hit with all of the debris and the dust and cut to Charles Martin Smith, like, are they there? Are they still there? Are they dead? Whatever. And, you know, we're asking the same things and there they are through the dust. He does an expert job as he does of showing us that suspense and keeping us guessing. But as a finale, it's great. And it's not over long either. It's pretty concise. It's pretty quick. And for that, I like it. He doesn't like really draw it out. Yeah. So the lighting turns red and blue with snowflakes falling as Jenny and Starman say their goodbyes. Jenny asks Starman to take her with him. Starman explains that she would die if he went to his planet. Starman hands her the last of the blue balls to give to the unborn son as he is teleported up to the spacecraft. Small little problem with that. Jenny was taken hostage, shot and killed, survived an oil rig explosion and an entire fleet of helicopters firing missiles at her. She gets nothing. So I thought that was kind of rude that he said, ah, just give this to the kid. She doesn't get any kind of like parting gift there. Well, I mean, she does have the kid. The DNA of Scott is there. Yeah. Where she couldn't before. I mean, so in a way that is the gift, but I mean, if it's cut to like 10 years from now and she's like working like three jobs trying to support (laughs) this kid, but the kid has the blue ball. He can do anything he wants with it. Uh, She's stuck working three jobs trying to raise this fatherless (laughs) child (laughs) who took off. I did like the cryptic way though, when she was like, well, what am I going to do with this? And he was like, the baby will know. I thought that was kind of neat. It was ominous kind of. 
but yet at the same time, hopeful. Maybe I shouldn't even ask the question. Maybe a human being can't use the ball. Maybe she was never going to get it to begin with. I don't know. Yeah, true. He does confirm that the kid will be human, yeah. but he also does say that his DNA will mm-hmm. be there. Yeah. So maybe he can access the ball with that. Almost like a Jarrell type of thing. Like he will know what to do with the with the Oh crystal. yeah, like he's got a little <laughs> fortress of <Yeah>. solitude. <laughs> uh, so we're almost at the end here. The music swells, the lighting changes, and we end on a slight boom up on Karen Allen's face. Perfect way to end the film and the credits begin to roll. Just want to point this out. <laughs> Both E.T. and Starman end on the main character's face as we boom up. Also, the one thing I wanted to point out, and I didn't mention this last time, but I love the way that Carpenter ends his movies open-ended like that. Both Big Trouble Little China, Starman, and a couple of his other movies like The Thing. But definitely Starman and Big Trouble Little China, which we'll talk about in a little bit next podcast. But they end where they could be sequels and they never had a sequel. And I kind of really love that, especially in a day and age where everything in this multiverse that we're living in these days has to have a fucking sequel. And I love that none of those movies have had one. First thing I thought was, given you mentioned this day and age, what also is going on is that all these resurgences are happening with like quite literally Independence Day. No, was it called Resurgence? Was it resurgence? <laughs> it's one of the R words, was yeah. <laughs> Resurrected yeah, I, resurgence. I, I, I was going to say, like, literally it was called that. Mm-hmm. Like, it was actually called that. But but all of these properties. Mm-hmm. The Matrix movies getting R words. Yeah, kind of like <laughs> content, which I don't like, as I know you don't either. Mm-hmm. But, like, all of these properties are doing real-time sequels. And that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, you know, Carpenter come out of retirement. Karen Allen's still around. Charles Martin Smith is still around. They could reprise their roles. We, the kid kid would be 40 39 or 40 because like two years it's the 40th anniversary of that thing mm-hmm. yeah so it's a perfect opportunity not that it needs to happen but i was like man they could do a thing where maybe he's that's when he starts clicking with the ball he was left or maybe the government starts doing something or maybe the alien species sends something else like who knows contrived thing would happen but charles martin smith gets involved because he sees the signs of, that were similar from 40 years ago i mean it it could be interesting but it could be Total dog shit too. Like you never know. Like a lot, some of them are the way that are done now. But for myself, I really, I really loved the ending. I thought as similar as it is to ET. At least when it was her reaction shot, which is the shot I was saying, perfectly echoes when she sees him resurrect that deer. The lighting starts to change, and it starts right when the music swell theme hits. It starts that slightly upward boom, mm-hmm. and she follows it up, and you get her reaction to what she's seeing, and you, we never see it, which I love that kind of stuff because we can make it whatever we yeah. want. I don't need more special effects. For me, this was Jenny's movie, so ending on her face and just booming up and watching her lift her eyes up and watch this person she just fell back in love with again take off through her eyes. Yeah. For me, with the music, all, I thought it was that's what I needed. perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. And you, all you see of him is, yes, the lighting is weird and, and everything. And, and he's walking way far away and he turns around and I, don't, I'm not, I can't remember if he waves or not. It holds his hand up, but you never see him ascend. He's just there. You just see the camera do it. So you know he's doing it mm-hmm. with that action. But then you see her follow up and her reaction is just brilliant. And the music's washing up. You know, I, honestly, I, as imperfect as some of the order of stuff is that you're talking about is, which I concur with, my tears were welling up. And I was like, oh. And when it kept holding on her, I just kept saying, don't go to anything else. Please let this be it. Please let this be it. And when it cut to black, I was gone, dude. I lost it. I loved it. I, I like, the, I like, like the lighting lighting change too. It, you know, from that stark blue and red, and it just changes back to the natural lighting from the crater. It's just a great way to end that yeah. movie, man. It's really good. Like you said, we don't need any effects. We don't need to see her getting grilled by the 
feds, which I'm sure she did, which again, I don't even, I hate even talking about that because you don't want to think of her going through that and being sort of poked and prodded herself just from her time with him. Like you don't want to think about that. Um, it may not be a perfect film, but certain beats within are just perfection and they're handled perfectly. The ending is no exception. And I, very impressed by the ending. And when things happen the way you want, you know, that there's nothing like that where you're like, oh my God. And the fact that I just kept repeating, like, don't go to anything else. Don't go to another shot. Don't go, just go to black, cut to black. And when it happened, I was just like, oh, fuck. I couldn't agree more. It's great. I couldn't agree more. It's a great, the music's still going. You cut to black and it just leaves the audience wanting more. And that music really just glues you to your seat, man. Yeah, and it continues. Like the theme just keeps Mm -hmm. going. It doesn't just stop. It just Mm -hmm. keeps going. It keeps going throughout the credits and you're just like washed over and Mm -hmm. you think about everything you've seen and it's like this movie is definitely one of those where you just sit there and you're just like thinking of everything you've seen and been through the journey with them very much like heat like the music just keeps going and you are not getting yeah. up out of your chair man it's awesome. and very actually you mentioned that it yep. sounds, sounds like that, kind of similar yeah, very, much very like heavy movie. synth yeah very whole tones very synth mm-hmm. very just like it washes over you that's mm-hmm. great what happens after the movie do you think when the kid's born it grows up in 90 seconds Oh, you know what? I thought about that. And the fact that he says that it's human makes me think that it's going to be a normal progression. Gotcha. Just okay. by its alien DNA. <laughs> so we're not going to get to Winston to come back and redo the baby. Yeah, but I actually said, I actually said to myself as he was leaving, I was like, well, enjoy uh, your kid who's going to like graduate high school in about 15 minutes after it's born. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> yeah. I meant to say, when I said it would be a teacher, it would be an instant teacher. <laughs> <laughs> right out of the, the womb, he's got his mortarboard on, throwing his cap. Goodbye. Jenny In 1983, there was a low-budget sci-fi movie called Wavelength, starring Robert Carradine from Revenge of the Nerds, obviously, and Sherry Curry from The Runaways. At the end of the movie, there's an alien spacecraft that is a mirrored sphere, and it reflects the Earth in the bottom, just like Starman's ending. We talked about this in a previous podcast where Carpenter sued Luc Besson for ripping off Escape from New York. Well, the people who made Wavelength actually sued Columbia. They lost, but I thought it was interesting that it oh, uh, came back to bite him in the ass. That's crazy that the big dog won over the little dog then. <laughs> I didn't watch the movie, but I looked up the trailer, and the sphere does look exactly... Exactly like the mothership in, in Starman. That's crazy. We talked a little earlier about the absence of Dean Cundy on this movie. That's Carpenter's regular DP. There was a quote from Carpenter about why he didn't work with Cundy. And he said, before we could ever work together again, we would have to clear up some attitude problems. Little interesting. Now, he came <laughs> back and shot Big Trouble Little China, but a little behind the scenes drama there. Obviously, wow. I, I love the way Donald M. Morgan shot this movie and I had a great time interviewing him. For this podcast, but definitely anytime you think of Carpenter, if you're not thinking of uh, Morgan, you're thinking of Dean Cundy. And, and I thought that was kind of an interesting quote. <laughs> that is an interesting quote. And I didn't know that they had issues. But, and so that's quite interesting. What's also interesting to me is that, and I'm sure the director has total call over this, but I'm not going to say it's a carbon copy of Cundy, but man, every light in that movie, the glare of it stretches across that screen like Cundy, the anamorphic, like you're saying, total Carpenter style. It would have been interesting to see if Cundy had shot this, what that would have been. But uh, they came pretty damn close, in my opinion, because it's all there. It just like we talk about that Cundy flair over and over before. It doesn't maybe have that, but it definitely has that Carpenter style. 
and I talked to Donald about this, about shooting Christine and Starman back to back with Carpenter. That, for me, I felt by Starman, they had really gotten into a rhythm because I, I love the way Christine looks. I mean, I love the way Christine looks. And for a movie that needs to show off the beauty of the American landscape, everyone did a really good job with its look. I think we talked about this earlier, but Sandy King, the script supervisor, later became the producer on a lot of Carpenter films, and she married him in 1990. And then... um Sean Levy, the guy who directed Free Guy, he's doing a remake yeah. of Starman. Carpenter involved, like score-wise, like Halloween? or Whether he's involved or not, he just wants the paycheck, so I, I don't know if he's yeah, involved I, or not. I but... wonder if it's that one. Honestly, it's that, to me, that's interesting on a couple of levels, is that, like Sean Levy with his special effects and everything. Like for, I haven't seen Free Guy, but it looks really fun. Um, but I know he's behind a lot of properties like Stranger Things and different things like that. I would be honestly interested in seeing it, but if Carpenter was involved... Producing wise, probably just means money exchange hands. Yeah. Well, maybe he can do what he's doing for Halloween where he can just do the score, even though he didn't do the original score. That's, it'd be kind of cool to see his take on a Starman score. That would be yeah, pretty Yeah, That's what I was saying. Cool. Like, that would be great because honestly, I don't know if you watched it on Peacock, but the new Firestarter, it's not great at all, <laughs> uh, but worth watching for his music. Right. Because we've talked about it at length. His music is just badass. And mm-hmm. honestly, the movie works on some levels. Ultimately, it doesn't because they just truncate too much of King's stuff. Not that the Drew Barrymore one in the 80s was that much better. And I think would have probably shown if Carpenter had done it like it was planned. But when you truncate King too much, it gets a little bit like Cliff's Notes. I feel like the way to watch it is is just with Carpenter's score in mind. Treat the movie as like, oh, he scored this. Okay, great. Listen to his score. You know, like that's kind of a terrible thing to say about a movie, but. It just wasn't that great. And I give a lot of benefits of a lot of doubts, and I couldn't do it with that movie. <laughs> couldn't do it. But yeah, if Carpenter was involved with the Starman remake score, I would be 100% down to see it at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get a chance, check out the song Symphonies by Dan Black and Kid Cudi. Uses the Jack Nietzsche score from Starman. On my way to work, I probably yeah, will. Yeah, you'll love it. It's a good use of Nietzsche's music. It's awesome. What would you fix about this movie? Okay. Besides the what I mentioned earlier already about the exposition scenes that almost every government scene was, and doing that more... I mean, I, you can't really do it more modern then because that was modern when they did it or whatever. But the way things are done now, where things are dropped as clues for you to piece together instead of spoon-feeding it to you in one dump of an exposition... That would be something I'd change. But also something that throughout the movie, I kept wanting the whole magical moments when Starman uses his otherworldly powers to just just stretch out a little more. The music heightened them all and either distracted from the effects or whatever, but like they lifted them up in a way. But then I felt like they were always lopped off. I felt like you could hear the music start to turn and just go, it was like, da na 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 and then it would just kind of be done and the scene would change possibly to another government scene. So you're just kind of like, uh, if he had just stretched out those magical power moments a little bit longer, let them breathe a little bit more. I feel like it would have just been a little bit better or a little bit more well-rounded of, of a segment each time as it is. It's great and it works, but yeah, just let those breathe a little bit. Don't wrap them so soon. Don't cut them off at the knees or the ankles. Like let them just breathe a little more and and naturally go. Just felt like every time it was chop, chop, chop. So there's two things I would fix. One is a quick one. 
I would cut out, and I purposely skipped over this earlier, but there's a scene when Starman is still the form of energy and he's floating around Jenny's house. And he sees a photograph of Scott, Jeff Bridges, and it turns into this like kind of 3D printer version with this cheesy sound effect. I hated that, bro. I'll be honest with you. If there's one thing I absolutely cannot stand in this movie, it's that. (laughs) That I hated to pieces. Because he's kind of smirking in it, too. He's like, hey, hey, hey. It's just so cheesy. (laughs) It's so cheesy. The effects obviously do not transcend well into today's uh, CGI, but really dummies up that scene. If he had just stayed with the POV and had the POV float into the hair and then get the the molecules and the DNA of the hair, I think that would have matured that scene so much more. But to tie into what you were talking about, as far as like the magic of some of the things that he was doing, these things that earthlings cannot do, I really think we should have had Charles Martin Smith after the oil rig tanker blows up. He lands moments right after. And this happens throughout the movie where Charles Martin Smith barely misses everything that Starman and Jenny do. So he's getting there like moments after. And yeah. He's always kind of getting like these reports. Well, you just missed it, but this is what happened. And then secondhand, he's like <laughs> giving these reports to director Fox. He's like, wow, I heard what happened is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it has like no punch at all. If Charles Martin Smith's character, if Sherman had been flying over a helicopter, seeing the car chase sequence happen and Navy was like giving the cops like directive orders, like stop chasing them. You're going to kill them. Really building up that tension and seeing the car go into the oil tanker and seeing it explode and it, and maybe seeing Charles Martin Smith freaking out or crying and, and then seeing him come through the flames engulfed in a blue glow, holding a dead Jenny in his arms. I think the second half of the movie would have been so much more powerful because Charles Martin Smith would have seen something that is beyond his knowing, something yeah. that something that would have great. changed his religion. And to see yeah. that happen, I think that would have made the movie so much more powerful, in my opinion. And I think that same music that Nietzsche uses in that scene would have been so much better had Charles Martin Smith seen that action happen versus landing moments later and be like, wow, Director Fox, this is what happened. That's so flat compared to Charles Martin Smith seeing the actual action happen. Mm-hmm. What do you see? What are you saying? They survived this? What are you saying? And then he could change his story and lie to them and keep the secret to himself. He can say, no, no, I don't see anything. I'm sorry. It was just a trick of the flame. But yet you see him seeing them walk away. And then the whole rest of the time, you're right. He would have had that secret. And then it would have changed the autopsy scene too, because he would have known that he's still alive. Well, it also would have changed the scene at the end where he's like, I can't let, you know, when Jenny says, you can let him go. I think he would have been pouring tears had he had seen what Starman is capable of. He would have known what it's really like, as Jules would say in Pulp Fiction, God came down and stopped these motherfucking bullets. You know, he would have seen a miracle happen. And I think that would have changed the second half of the movie. Just my opinion, but. Yeah, because then that would have given him a motivation to say, I can't let you go. Because then it wouldn't have anything to do with the job Mm -hmm. that was threatened. Yeah. It's like. I have seen you do so. I know this is real. Yeah. I can't let you go. Yeah. And then it would have added to that. You're right, man. That's a good idea. Good call. I think it would have made it more powerful. God knows he was in that helicopter long enough every time we saw him. I know. (laughs) As you said, anytime we were cutting into anything military, I think it was a little bit boring. I think had Charles Martin Smith been flying over and seen that miracle happen, I think it just would have changed the, the whole dichotomy of the movie. Anyways. All right. I had asked you before we started recording today, I want you to think about what it would be like to replace the score that we love, this score for Starman, with another already existing score. Well, I already mentioned how I feel like Carpenter was right there giving notes, but Nietzsche does kind of bring his own thing into it with the lyrical aspect of the theme we're talking about all uh, quite a bit this uh, episode. But the two people I thought of that I think would have made an interesting score for this is uh, James Horner, 
I think he would have done like a pretty interesting, he's got some sci-fi stuff in his past with like the Star Trek two and three and whatever. And then also he did fantasy with Willow. So it's like, I feel like he could have a good sound. I mean, I, I ultimately RIP, I feel like he's a little repetitive in a lot of his stuff throughout the years. And there's only like a couple that I think are really standouts for him, but I feel like he would have made an interesting choice to score the movie given that some of his themes can be very lyrical. Do you have a specific and, and, movie score that you would replace it with though? Um, Cocoon might be good because I think he did that. But then if you think about it, it's very similar alien beings of light mm-hmm. kind of deal. So maybe that's a little too spot on. But mm-hmm. Jerry Goldsmith is another one that I thought might have been an interesting fit with mm-hmm. Carpenter and a sci-fi alien movie. Plus, he also has a little quirky. He can have a little quirky edge to some of his scores, too, which might work in, in something like this. I don't really have a specific score from him that I thought of, but for the main sweeping theme that Nietzsche did, and I am going to go into Williams for this. So I guess I, maybe I lied earlier. I don't know. <laughs> I've always loved John Williams theme from Empire of the Sun called okay. the Cadillac of the Skies. It's very sweeping and it's just gorgeous. And when I watch that movie, I'm always like, yes, this fits here. Of course it fits like Taylor made it for that movie. But when you ask the question of what, what would be good to fill in or whatever for a Starman, that track, that cut, that theme stood out to me. What if every time that sweeping Nietzsche theme happened, what if it was Cadillac of the skies? So if people want to go YouTube that or whatever, just to listen to that, there is a moment in there where it really hits. And it's like, if that was the thing that closed the movie and was at every little like otherworldly power, magical moment, it would be like another plane of existence, man. It'd be like lifting up, going to that plane, you know, like, what or where am I going? You know, like it would be insane. I love that. Not that the original one isn't, isn't good and great and beyond. Awesome. All right, dude, I got one for you. I was trying to think of a score that would... Do a little bit of the same stuff that Jack Nietzsche's score was doing, but also be able to go in on its own way. What came to me was Arcade Fire's score for the movie Her. And I thought overall it would probably be a more sadder version of Starman, but it's completely different from Nietzsche's score while still retaining the sense of wonder, the discovery between two completely different beings, the playfulness, and both scores handle the split up at the end of the movie very delicately. So there was a couple of times where I was just listening to the score from her and there's some playfulness, but there's also some real sorrow going on. And so I thought the Arcade Fire score to her would be a good replacement for the Starman score. That's cool. I need to re-familiarize myself. I'm going to re-familiarize myself with Empire of the Sun. It's been (laughs) like a long time. I have one final question for you. I want you to rate this movie as a Carpenter fan and a non-Carpenter fan. I feel like as a non-Carpenter fan, it's higher. For instance, my father loving the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he knew that John Carpenter was primarily known for horror or suspense or whatever. I don't think he knew that Mm -hmm. because what I'm going to say next episode it was more than likely on the heels of this movie. And maybe he noticed John Carpenter's name based on the strength of this movie that he took me and my brother to the theater to see Big Trouble in Little Mm -hmm. China. I can't ask him now, which sucks. Like I know that it has to be that unless he just saw the trailer and thought, man, that looks like pretty badass, crazy ass movie. Like that's possible also because he also loved Star Wars. And he often described to me as like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, like the trailer for Star Wars, like swashbuckling, but sci-fi, it's in space. I got to go see this thing, you know? So maybe it was just a trailer. But yeah, as a non-Carpenter fan, I would say this movie ranks, it's got to be higher than a Carpenter fan. Because if you're a Carpenter fan going into this and there's not every telltale horror suspense thing that you want, you might not rate it as high. Mm-hmm. And if you're into that kind of stuff, maybe you're not into road 
movies, buddy movies, romantic comedy movies with an alien and a, and a woman who is sitting there with her dead husband and wondering what the hell's going on the whole time or for a majority of the time. Like maybe you're not into that. So I would say a Carpenter fan would probably put it. I wouldn't say like uh, you give it a half or five or whatever out of 10, maybe you'd give it a seven, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's still an enjoyable, well done movie. But yeah, for a non Carpenter fan, I'd say it's up there like eight, nine yeah. out of 10, mm-hmm. like just a solid, solid movie. That's an interesting question. Yeah. It's cause it does <laughs> exist as both. It's crazy. We're going to continue doing the, the career retrospective. And there's going to be a couple of movies that I probably give a couple passes to because it has the name Carpenter <laughs> attached to it. What would a person who's not a Carpenter fan, think of this movie but then at the same time i am watching this as a carpenter fan so i need to be able to judge it there was a few pacing issues for me i think the third act could have been drawn out a little bit more i felt like there's a couple things towards the end where i'm like really wrapping this up a little too fast vegas went really fast i think we could have played a little bit more in vegas the crater stuff really went fast the fact that the local cops let them go without really even checking id i would have liked to have explored Jenny's dealing with her dead husband walking around a little bit more in my opinion but for the most part I thought Karen Allen and Bridges were absolute magic together Nietzsche's music we've talked about endlessly I think is probably the game ball winner throughout this whole thing and I will definitely say getting ready for this podcast the more I watched it this movie got a little bit more emotional every time you watch it so I really enjoyed it man Carpenter's on his way back here the thing was such a flop box office wise Mm -hmm. that despite its eventual cult status he was a bit taken aback by that and then further so when universal dumped him mm-hmm. and thank goodness columbia saw something there still and let him do christine which still solid entry but i feel like starman is his way back to like solid storytelling and really getting into a good groove to do his own thing mm-hmm. like he did a couple of movies where he was doing someone else's story and adapting it and putting his style there but now he's starting to branch out his style and quirkiness and horror everything it's a big trouble little china such a stew of everything great and awesome starman is his sort of scratching and clawing his way out of whatever funk he was in to be able to get to a place to do big trouble in little china the way he did it even though that one wasn't as well received either at the time and also did another cult status thing it's still like his journey to get there with christine and starman doing all these and revisiting these has just been Just insane, man. I agree. Just a great thing. You just brought this up. We're going to look back at this when we're completely done with this series. But this, for the the most part, is a real mold breaker. He had done nothing like this before. And the fact that he can get so far out of his comfort zone and do this movie. We talked about at the beginning, this is probably up to its date, the most non-Carpenter, John Carpenter movie. It's a romantic road movie. And he never did anything remotely close to this. So in that documentary, he's like, I jumped at the chance because when am I ever going to get the chance to do this yeah. again? And he never did. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So That's true. Yeah, I think he killed it, man. Mark, as always, I love having conversations with you, man. I can't thank you enough for doing Starman with me. I'm really looking forward to our next one. Spoiler alert. Big Trouble Little China is our next John Carpenter yeah. career retrospective. It is my absolute favorite John Carpenter movie. Oh, nice. Secret's out now. No fucking you around. I am going to be probably talking for a long time on that one so i'm looking forward to the next one man thank you so much for the great uh, conversation dude yeah dude anytime every time baby yeah hope you guys enjoyed that episode if you did please don't forget to like and subscribe and follow us on our social media pages like instagram and facebook also our official website sidetrack.stream Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We love all of you guys. We cannot wait to share season two with you. And until next time, watch more movies. What he said. <laughs>